welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 119th episode, our returning guest is Jonathan Fowler. You first heard Jonathan Fowler in episodes 2, 10, 20, 21, 29, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35, 43, 48, 51, 56, 64, 74, 83, 92, 102, 103, 104, 105, 106, 107, 108, 109, 111, 114, 115, 116, and episode 82, which also featured fellow regular guest Ash Burgess of the podcast. Jonathan graduated with a BA in history from Indiana University in 2006. He is an unabashed left-wing political junkie. He has lived and worked in South Korea for over 10 years, trying to help the citizens of that great nation hopefully talk pretty one day. If you listened to the last seven episodes with Jonathan, you heard us talk about the first four seasons of The Wire. On this episode, we'll be discussing up through the very end of the series. So, consider this your blanket spoiler alert. And now, on to the show. Hey, Jeff. Hey, what's up, Bob? Oh, nothing much. Yeah, no, I got about 15 minutes left, but I know what happened, right? Like, you know, I, I kind of fucked up. I got busy tonight and stuff with a bunch of stuff. Yeah, okay. So I'm good to talk on it. Okay, cool. So, yeah, but I guess we should mention you uh, had a run in with a K pop girl group tonight, apparently, right? Ooh, yeah. I went over, okay, my plans, I had plans and my plans changed. Uh, a couple times tonight. There's been a lot of reversals tonight, basically. So I was gonna, I was gonna put in my notice for two months at my job, but I came out of my class about 20 minutes before I was over because it was on break or whatever, and I asked like, "Where's the boss?" And they said, "Oh, he's not home already," which is bizarre because he usually doesn't go home until the very end of the night. I was like, damn it, well, I guess I can't, you know, this thing I've been getting myself up to do, kind of, you know, have this talk or whatever, which is not a, not a comfortable conversation, obviously, and stuff, because it's my quitting after I've been here for six years pretty much to directly influence his leadership. Mm-hmm. He, I don't know how he's going to take it and stuff, so. But he was going, so, you know, there's nothing I can do, so I have to do it tomorrow after class on Saturday, so. Mm-hmm. So that was hard. <clears throat> so then my plan was there was a there was a very good um, short story I read a long time ago. And it was called I think it was called what what, what we wanted to do, mm-hmm. and it has like one of the best opening lines of any short story. <clears throat> it's like what we wanted to do was pour hot grease down on the heads of the barbarians who were coming through our gates. <laughs> or something, but it's, but this guy basically this guy is kind of like this mid level <clears throat> village functionary or something from 500 years ago is talking about this raid that happened on the thing and like why his plan to defend the city didn't succeed and it resulted in mass murder and rape inside and how they'll do better next time defending against the Vikings or something and so it's just like an epic for opening lines like what we wanted to do was pour hot grease on the heads of the eight barbarians that came to the gate I'm, I'm sure I'm butchering that uh, I actually have it pulled up right now it says uh, what we wanted to do was spill boiling oil onto the heads of our enemies as they attempted to bang down the gates of our village but as everyone knows we had some problems primarily technical problems that prevented us from doing what we wanted to do the way we had hoped to do it 
<laughs> yeah, and I, I think that opening line and also the title, the couple with the title of the short story, which is what we wanted to do, is amazing. <laughs> I think that's amazing. <laughs> I've never heard of it before. That's funny, though. So, yeah, it's worth a read. Um, I think it was from the mid '90s or something when the kind of the corporate speak was. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Topical. Oh, so anyway, yeah, I was going to put it on notice tonight, and it didn't happen, and it's been pushed to tomorrow. And I pretty much need to get my notice right now because the place where I'm probably going to be working two months from now needs me to give two months' notice to this guy before I quit. And so I pretty much have to do it by the end of this month. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then my point, what I wanted to do, again, to come back to the phrase of the book, was to go to Sanborn, get some Indian curry, take it home, and enjoy the Indian curry while I watched this uh, TV show circa about 9 p.m., 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen because I was distracted by five or six dancing beauties at Sanborn who were... Uh, gyrating and stuff and I couldn't figure out if they were a real K-pop band or kind of like a local knockoff or something was covering famous songs and then I went and got the Indian curry but then I got a message that some of the front desk staff girls wanted to drink with me uh, and eat some chicken well I went and had to drink with them briefly because I that's the kind of invitation you only get about once a year maybe and uh, they're nice girls very helpful very good good workers and stuff so mm-hmm. So I did that, and we talked about things, and then I came home to watch the episode, and I've been watching the episode, and then I had another setback, because I thought, I can do an hour, I can be ready by midnight, and I was like, oh, the final episode of this show is like an hour and 33 minutes long, and I'm like, oh, man, man, I just can't catch a break tonight, <laughs> but I did my damnedest. But you know what happens, so you've, you've, seen, you've seen it before, so you know what happens, but... Yeah, I've been through it twice. Mm-hmm. So I may have lost some of the poignancy of the final 20 minutes, but I think I can, I'm can. i good for the rest of the season. Okay. Well, we could just have 20 minutes of silence while you sit there and watch it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, the, the long-distance bills will be great. For yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But, well, I'm yeah, glad you yeah. finally made it to the yeah. end of that gauntlet. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a so it's it's been a hell of a show, you know. I, I again I feel like, you know, you came into it not you you'd had trouble getting into it at the beginning as we discussed. I think you, you went all the way. You you went all the way in, you've been all the way through. And from what the message said, you had some reservations about the final season. So I'm very curious to hear about that because yeah, I, I think like I again I think like there are two or three times in the show that that the the writers got a little bit it took creative license I guess mm-hmm. they you know yeah. made characters do things that we can't hardly imagine real people ever doing in the real world mm-hmm. for dramatic purposes to make the, to make the larger points I feel like that the that the writers were making mm-hmm. about the system and about you know things but at the same time they had characters acting against their own self interest and against you know against character in a certain way almost mm-hmm. almost against character I think yeah for sure a little bit irresponsible so. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, um, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm actually just, I, while I was waiting for you to finish up there, I was just been finishing that book I told you about, uh, All the Pieces Matter, which I'm interviewing the author, Jonathan Abrams, of that soon, but it's an oral history of The Wire, and it's kind of a behind-the-scenes look of how the show got made and kind of some of the creative decisions and, and kind of struggles behind the scenes they had. Um, one thing I didn't realize was that the show was nearly canceled after season three, because I guess HBO didn't see how you go on after Stringer Bell dies. Like that was kind of the hook that they had for the show, and then they were like, "No, we have we have two more storylines we want to tell. We want to do the media and we want to do uh, education." So they said, "Okay, fine. You can have these last two seasons to finish it up." So um, I think they kind of knew that going into it, and in our, in retrospect, with all the problems that I had with season five, and we'll get the, to those, of course, but um, I don't actually think the show should have ended after season four because they kind of mentioned that there are a lot of loose strands left hanging at the end of season four, even though it's we're on to a new subject. Like we still have the bodies and the vacants. We haven't we haven't uh, solved that crime, or no one's been brought to task for that. Um, we still have the kids. We want to see where they go. Um, you know, we still have all these all these strands that we haven't tied up yet so I guess there does kind of have to be another season um, but one thing that I think did kind of make the show go downhill a little bit is apparently Ed Burns who was the guy that kind of co-wrote the show with David Simon kind of primarily he actually left the show in season 5 and he went to work on Generation Kill and so David Simon was kind of more left to his own devices in that last season and I think some of his uh, more you know literary flair instincts, I don't know what you call them, kind of were checked a little bit, because Ed Burns had been a police officer and he'd also been a middle school teacher, so he kind of brought that realism back down to earth um, and I think David Simon really, really wanted to tell that newspaper story, so I think he kind of was like, man, this is my last mm-hmm. shot I'm on my own now, I'm going to do this and I think that he kind of lost that grounding that Ed Burns gave him and I guess Ed Burns said he hasn't even really seen the fifth season, <laughs> he didn't even watch it <laughs> so, um, oh my god I know, right? Really? It, yeah, I think he was he was gone after that because I mean he was I mean in and in, in retrospect uh, it kind of makes sense because um, season four actually I think it's kind of competing with season two for me for best season right now and after reading this book I kind of mm-hmm. realized why it's kind of like you kind of see why these people don't have a chance and it's like people that say oh everyone has the same chance in life and pull yourself by up by your bootstraps and you know it just kind of shows the these the very the ground level. It's like, you know, even the kids like Dookie that have potential, uh, you know, he's just going to become Bubbles. That's kind of what we see him becoming at the end of season five. We see yeah. Michael's going to be the new Omar. You know what I mean? This is like a dandelion. That's what they call it, a yeah. dandelion case. It just keeps growing in the same spot, and it's just a new new face on an old thing. So, yeah. Hmm. But Yeah. Yeah. I thought that, I mean, that's obviously the payoff to the kids, mm-hmm. um, which is... You know, which is a worthwhile. And see, that that was the thing. Like when you said you were, you, you, you were kind of like that guy in The Simpsons or whatever. The you know the, the kind of the nerd guy. You're like, you know, worst season ever, worst finale ever. <laughs> How can you possibly say this is like the best show when it ends like this? And I'm like, I frankly, I mean, like, I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. I'm just saying like I've never actually 
met anybody else who's gone all the way through all five seasons of The Wire and had such a negative reaction to begin. Okay, well, I guess well, I'll just well, we'll get right into it. I mean, the, the thing that I think really hampered this season was the serial killer plotline. Um, it was a nice, okay. neat way for them to tie the um, newspaper thing to the story because it like gave us the Scott Templeton. And don't think I don't see what you're doing there, David Simon Templeton, Templeton the Rat from Charlotte's Web. I got you, um, <laughs> but. I'd- did not catch that. Yep, okay. I put that together afterwards. That What's that? Okay. Yeah, you remember Charlotte's Web, Was Templeton the Rat? No, I mean, uh, all the pieces matter. No, it wasn't. Actually, I just thought of that on my own. But um, Holy shit, wow, yes. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I, knew, I knew all my children's literature reading would come in handy, handy one day. Um, but, yeah, no, it's like... Yeah. I did too, but I forgot the shit. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but anyway yeah i mean like, I like yeah yeah for sure um but he's a rat and he's like obviously a uh stephen glass uh you know judith miller or not judith miller yeah maybe judith miller or you know all these like unscrupulous journalists that we see throughout you know the history of journalism he's just right in that mold um i was i i loved gus obviously you're supposed to love gus he's kind mm-hmm. of the hero of the newsroom he figures out what's going on no one listens to him he's like basically everything i aspire to be as, as a journalist he's he's you know he doesn't let anything by he's like he's very grounded and he wants to do good work and all that kind of stuff but yeah but it, i was just i was also just crushed that he won the pulitzer i'm like come on there's no comeuppance for this guy like he's gonna get away with it really um i guess if they had had a season six i guess they planned on him doing some actual journalism after he won the pulitzer to like you know bring it back around so he realizes that he was wrong in retrospect for what he did which i guess would have been a good payoff but it was just so disappointing because i'm like you're gonna take me all the way here and he's still gonna there's no constant he doesn't get nothing he gets he gets his pulitzer really um but <laughs> but i mean i understand why because you know mcnulty's thing didn't fall apart because they still wanted the drugs on the table for marlowe even the case those case was tainted um they couldn't say that that was a fraud because there was too much dirt in that case if they if they admitted that um they're basically blackmailing levy to get any kind of anything at all out of it at this point so i guess i see why they had to wrap it up like that but this all relates back to the problem of the serial killer plotline it was a huge mistake and i get what they were trying to do they're showing that you have to like manipulate the higher-ups to get them to pay for the actual police work but this is like okay i get that mcnulty's falling off he's drinking again he's you know cheating on bd with women on the front of his car you know <laughs> like you know i i get that you know i get he's kind of falling off the edge but this seems wild even for mcnulty and the fact that you know beyond that that lester freeman not only goes along with it but helps lead the charge and then he gets away with it at the end and nothing happens and they blame it all on this one guy like like none of that rang true to me like that still like bugs me but you know but i i I think that you know everything else i kind of was like okay after i thought about it a little bit i'm like okay this the rest of it kind of had to happen the way it happened i was mad that omar died but i guess you know from reading this book i guess he was supposed to have been killed off in the first season he was just so popular they kept him around yeah i was mad that prop joe died but i guess it made sense because marlo had finally cornered him and he'd been playing marlo all this time so i guess that makes sense but those are my two two of my favorite characters from the kind of the later seasons especially that you know i was like man why do they have to go and so you know i've, I've mellowed a little bit since i first saw it but i was just like i just was my jaw was on the floor when i first saw the ending i'm like that is how you end it what <laughs> like <laughs> yeah 
Well, I, you know, I don't think you or I really had a problem with the way that The Sopranos ended, but a lot of people felt very betrayed by the ending of The Sopranos. And so, you know, maybe this is kind of your taste of that, actually, in a different way, but, mm-hmm. you know, for different reasons. Right. Well, I actually, I but like I the ending of The Sopranos a lot, actually. I really do. Like, I, the more I think about it, I think that really ended on a good note. Like, it doesn't spoon-feed you anything. It kind of makes you figure out what happened you know without knowing um it's not quite as spelled out i I feel like the points they're making at the end of this season had already been made better in previous seasons like you know the people that fight against the system aren't gonna win and you know the bad guys get away with it but but that's another thing i'm jumping all over the map here but this is uh, you know the final season so we're trying to wrap it all up together but um you know i i'm not against people getting away with things that they shouldn't if it feels genuine like clay davis for example i love the scene with him in the courtroom making the emotional appeal after they lay out all the like checks and everything and they do the forensic accounting and show how he's been stealing from people and he basically dashes that all to the wind with one emotional plea to the yeah I'd do it all again like that felt real to me of course like yes it's like he's got this silver tongue and he's gonna like get out of this you know <laughs> so but yeah, Corey Davis is you know he is a <laughs> you, I, you hate the character but you love the character oh yeah he's like, he's like you know I was just trying to help the people <laughs> what are you talking about yeah you put me out there on the street I'm gonna go back out there and I'm gonna do it all again <laughs> you know, like, you're so right <laughs> I mean I don't know Senator I want to believe you I mean I'm your lawyer But there's all this up on the board that Mr. Bond has on display. 11,000 to West Side Hoops. Next day, $11,000 drawn. Then, $11,000 deposited in your personal banking account. You bet it all went into my account. It made it easier for me to do my job. And at the end of the day, not one penny stayed with me. I need you to do better than that, Senator. Where are your records? Records? Yes, records. For example, this check for $11,000, dated January 22nd. That was last winter, right? So, uh, some went to pay everyone's BGE, because half my district was going to have the heat turned off. And then some went for puff jackets for them that got children in need. Let me tell you something, man. My neck of the woods, it's a jungle out there. Everybody living hand to mouth, improvising, hustling, Make do with as little as you can imagine. Hell, that uh, that uh, TV show, what, what the uh, Survivor? Man, they want some good contestants. They need to come around West Side. <laughs> Folks, I know. Oh, we do great on that show. Practice every damn day of our lives. Hell, and Fear Factor? Oh shit! Don't even get me started. Forgive me, but I still don't understand how that justifies. Let me tell you something, brother. I don't know how they do it out in Roland Park. Maybe uh, Prosecutor Obama can enlighten me on that. But my world is strictly cash and carry, and I am Clay Davis. My people need something, they know where to find me. Let me tell you, brother. I step out the door, hit the corner of Mosier and Pennsylvania. You better believe my pockets are bulging. But by the time I get to Robert Street... Objection! Objection, Your Honor! Senator, take a seat and refrain from offhand references to Mr. Bond. My apologies, Your Honor. <clears throat> but these charities were set up for 
basketball leagues in city rec centers, weren't they? Yeah, but you give me 20,000 for a basketball and an air pump, I am pulling goodly on that for whatever, whoever comes at me. Senator Clay, I gots to bury my mother, bail out my son, buy a new shirt for a job interview, pay my child's asthma doctor. Takes me half an hour to go a hundred yards. And excuse me if I didn't ask that old arthritis woman for a receipt. Or that young mother needed to simulac to sign a damn piece of paper so I don't have to be up here in this box right now explaining to folks who never been in our neck of the woods how things truly are. And if a jury of my peers, you all, deem it right and true for me to walk out of here and upright and justified, man, oh, I ain't gonna lie to you. I'm gonna do the same damn thing tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that until they got me laid out at Marge's funeral home and trucked me off to Mount Auburn. accusations made against me, the people who I continue to serve have spoken. What the fuck However just happened? I can, as long as I can to serve the people. Whatever it was, they don't teach it in law school. That was, that was, uh, yeah, that was amazing. I mean, there's just, there's a lot to talk about, obviously, mm -hmm. as always with the show. Um, Clay Davis is a big one. Yeah, oh, yeah, Clay Davis, man, and, and he was so pissed at everybody. He thought they were turning their backs on him and stuff. And he was going around making the rounds to talk to people and like, you know, uh, he felt so affronted and betrayed himself. And then he just, you know, he beat the charge basically, and they couldn't get him because of double jeopardy basically. And and so then Lester Freeman went back on him and said, "Look, what can you give me on other things and stuff here? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna take this to the FBI." And they're going to recharge you if you don't give me something on some other things. He's like, okay, here's what I can give you. <laughs> so, yeah, Clay Davis. Oh, my God, we're going to come back to him. But, uh, yeah, okay, this season, boy, I, let me check my notes. I know we're going to be careful when we get into the notes because I don't want to go just item by item as much as possible. But at the same time, there's definitely things that I won't remember that we need to mention. So. Yeah, I think at the beginning of the season, they in the first episode, they kind of um, set it up talking about a couple of, they kind of some cheeky lines about how Americans would believe anything, you know, believe everything you read, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, things about budget cuts hitting overtime and paying the police department, uh, police cars were not being serviced and everything, and so people were not being able to have the materials or the overtime or anything to do their jobs. Um, I was a little curious about how in the hell Chris and Snoop were still in the street doing what they did mm -hmm. during the last season, but I guess that was explained a little bit later about the gun charge. It was something, something happened with that. Um, Marlowe was always aware that he was being tailed, so you, you feel like at the beginning the police are doing good work, but he's like, oh yeah, I know they're on me. Yeah, we got that guy in the car, we got the guy in the van and stuff, and they're like, oh, they, they totally know exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. 
Um, Michael had DP working his quarter. Michael had Duquan working his quarter there that he had gotten. And he's basically a hitman for Marlo and Chris and Snoop. Um, yeah, and Michael's not, or Duki was not getting any respect from Spider or the other guys in the corner, which, you know, was causing some problems because, I mean, I, I really feel like Michael's kind of an asshole in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he realizes the problem that his, like, his guys are not respecting Duquan, who's his good friend and stuff, but like, he doesn't empower, he doesn't lay down the law on these guys and say, no, you're going to, if you respect me, you're going to respect Duquan. Mm-hmm. He never like put himself on the line there for his friend. And, you know, Duquan got bounced around and basically Duquan becomes the next bubbles basically. And like the scene where he goes to, he goes back to, you know, teacher Presbolewski, Mr. Presbo. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, saying, look, I need some money to get into a GED program. And he's like, you don't need money to get into the GED program. And you, you don't qualify anyways, because you're still high school age or something. He's like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, sign up Mr. Mr. Presbo you'll see and stuff and that was just like heartbreaking I thought because like mm-hmm. you know he's not going to you know he's getting into the heroin and stuff uh, I don't know that was that was brutal. yeah definitely and yet we had this, this situation with uh, with Bubbles you know coming to terms with the death of, uh, of his friend mm-hmm. last season um, being interviewed by the son Baltimore Sun and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting proof of being a piece of good journalism where, you know, the, the journalist takes his time with the story, does the story the right way, respects his sources, you know, mm-hmm. puts them, et cetera. I mean, like, you know, and finally you get the scene where, you know, he's, Bubbles is basically staying at his sister's house and he can't come up the stairs. She keeps the top door locked, so he has to stay downstairs at all times and he has to go out when she goes out and stuff. And finally, at the end, she, like, tells him to come on up into the upstairs. So, like, she's, like, welcoming back into the family, polite society, you know, humanity. I, I don't know. It was an amazing scene, I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was really yeah. good. Although you're not supposed to show your sources your story before it's published for approval, that's a big no-no, and I think Gus even <laughs> mentions that. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's uh, I don't know. He, you know, you know, <laughs> the alternative is uh, Templeton, and I don't know. You know. No, no, <laughs> there's not not the only alternative. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it was it, obviously he was doing good journalism. He was doing better than Templeton for sure. I, I just you you can't give quote approval to. I mean, you yeah you can say if you don't want me to rewrite the story at all, that's fine. But I would never show somebody a source a story before it's published for approval. That's I mean that, that's not a hard and fast rule. That's more of a personal rule of mine that you could follow or not. I guess, but I think it's just yeah, I think your ultimate responsibility is to the reader personally, but. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, oh, by the way, you were pissed off about the death of uh, Prop Joe and uh, Omar, which, you know, everybody was. What did you think at the end when Cheese got shot in the head? <laughs> that was right. That was right. I was with Marlo, I was with Marlo, and, you know, now this is what it is or something. And then Slim Charles comes up and just shoots him in the side of the head. Yep. And like, man, you just cost us $900,000. Like, that was for Prop Joe. And I'm like, okay. 
I think I've heard that audiences cheered when that actually when that scene was, you know, on broadcast on TV because they were so sick of Cheese's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, after he betrayed Prop Joe, that was like I was ready for something to happen to him, and I think Slim Charles was just the guy to do it. <laughs> yeah, that was that was that was a moment. That was that was something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, uh, you know, yeah, and. No, well, I mean, you know, in the meantime, we know that things did not go well for uh, Cheese's son, Randy Wagstaff, who is in the group home, you know, not talking to, it's a year later, Bong tried to go back and get some quotes from him about the Marlowe thing and stuff. At this point, he's, he's a hardened, you know, basically a thug. He's like beating up the younger kids in the group home. He's like, you know, making a big show of not talking to the police because he doesn't want to be the snitch that he used to be. I mean, he is, he is totally transformed and we get the sense of, you know, uh, you know, again, based on the parallel of the, of the older gangsters and stuff, who, people in the community, we get the sense of where his life could be going. And, uh, and I don't know, you know, it's, it's prop Joe's dead and cheese is dead. And Randy is on a bad path. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's, a, it's a messed up situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was, I was upset about prop Joe getting caught, but I mean, he did play Marlowe through that whole season. Like we mentioned before, you know, he's kind of playing the, uh, the chess, uh, game and, and he finally got caught up in, in a checkmate situation. So, I mean, he was, he was playing the game and it finally caught up to him. Uh, what did you think of the way Omar well, yeah, it was messed up. Well, I mean, but what do you mean? Let's let's talk about that for a second. What do you mean by uh, Jim was playing uh, Marlowe? Because I, I feel like Joe was like honestly just trying to bring Marlowe into the co-op as a normal member, you know, and show him the benefits of it and the costs of not being in it. I, you know, I don't think he was actually like trying to hurt the guy in any way. He was just, you know. Well, I think I, I, well, I guess I don't mean, I, I play him is, is probably the wrong word to say, but like, I think he should have known that Marlowe was not, <laughs> he was not domesticated and he was not going to be domesticated. And that kind of plays out at the end of the, a lot of, a lot of people shouldn't, <laughs> Levy should have known that. Yes. And I think that was an amazing scene because Levy tells him, look, you're going to get out because the case against you is falling out, mm-hmm. falling apart. But, you know, Chris Partlow is going down for life. Um, you know, these other two guys, Monk and uh, I forget the other guy's name, they're going to jail for 20 years for dealing, but you're free. But the police are going to be watching you now. If they even smell a whiff of you getting back near the drug game, they're going to come back on with a new case. And so you got to get out. And he's like, okay. And at first he seems to be okay with that. And he sells his, his connect to the Greeks uh, for $10 million to the other, you know, gangsters who pool together. Um and then, you know, he finds himself later. This is the point where I didn't see this part tonight, but I'm remembering it. Um, he finds himself at one of those meetings where it's kind of like, mm-hmm. you know, he's kind of like a stringer bell. He's a fish out of water, basically. And he's realizing what it's going to be like to be this businessman or something and how this is just not him. And then he goes back out on the corner and he, 
you know, some guys pull a gun on him and they shoot through his sleeve or something, and he punches them and takes the gun or something, and they run off. And he's like, he's back on his corner and he's back on the street, and this is just who he is, and this is where he's going to be. Yeah. And, well, and uh, like, and they point out in the book here too that I just read that this is like he got exactly where Stringer Bell wanted to be, and he realized that he wanted no part of it. Like he got to the level that Stringer Bell was trying to get. Like, to, like Stringer Bell was fighting tooth and nail to get that into one of those like glitzy things where Levy was taking him and it's like and now it's like Marlo's just ready to throw it all away um I was also kind of sick of Marlo by the end of that I was just like okay fine whatever <laughs> like sociopath gets out and does more bad yeah. things I can't wait to see season six where he <laughs> keeps running wild whoopee <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah yeah Marlo yeah what what a what a I mean, human person just a demonic triumvirate basically yeah I don't know Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a little something. Well, anyways, back to the first episode, there was some more parallelism, I felt like, with between the budget cuts, downsizing in the police department as well, you know, no more overtime and the car's not getting serviced. And then there was also, you know, cutbacks, buyouts, downsizing at the Baltimore Sun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, the word, you know, we're just going to have to do more with less, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, people know you can't do more with less. And I think that's something that my current hot in my school is figuring out that, you know, mm-hmm. you can't do more with less. Like, the good people are going to leave, <laughs> uh, and, you know, students are going to suffer, and profits are going to dwindle, and it's just a downward spiral, right? It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. We had Carcetti. Mayor Carcetti now and Norris, uh, the woman <clears throat> chomping at the bit to take over. She's like, you jumped the line. It was my turn to be mayor. He's like, well, maybe if I become governor of Baltimore, of Maryland, then you can become the mayor of Baltimore after I leave. And so they kind of, he kind of bought her cooperation at that point, but they had some meetings and stuff. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that was, that was interesting. I thought, um, Hold on, did I? Yeah, I'm on, I'm on the same page. They, but they, they both decided to protect Clay Davis from federal prosecution, and they wanted to give it to their, their local prosecutor, Bond, right? Mm-hmm. And Bond ended up not being able to succeed in the case that that basically Lester Freeman brought him, even though it was basically an open and shut case because Clay Davis played, uh, he, he basically played the race card and he played it from the bottom of the deck to paraphrase the OJ trial, which I, I thought this whole Clay Davis thing kind of became an allegory for at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the prosecutors, the district attorney and stuff, they're just like, they're dumbfounded by the performance he's putting on, and they think they can just get it based on the, you know, the undeniable facts and evidence that they have, but they're not not factoring in the racial politics of the town and the emotional appeal that Clay Davis makes basically to the jury directly. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was just a fascinating thing. And, you know, and the thing was, in, in a way it was kind of a partisan decision, basically, uh, you know, um, Carcetti and Norris are both Democrats and they did not want to throw Clay Davis, a fellow Democrat to the Republicans at the state level or the mm-hmm. national level, basically. And that kind of cost the case. Yeah. Also, side note, I think we may have discussed this before, but uh, one of the main inspirations for Carcetti was Martin O'Malley. 
Martin O'Malley. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally got robbed by Hillary. Not even fair. Blue wave. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that that was an interesting thing. That was another thing that I was aware of during the election was that O'Malley was a candidate, and so that you know, and they never, you know, frankly, it's a it's a it's a what can we say? It's kind of a a credit to the fact that that guy never had a shot. That we never actually had a very good profile of him as the mayor of Baltimore or whatever he was, um, because that would have, I, I would have been fascinated to have read you know a long form piece on his tenure there. To just see how it stacked up against Carcetti, basically, the mm-hmm. you know, great white hope of Baltimore and the wire and how that would have worked out. But we, we never even, you know, he was never even a contender to the point that we actually got a full accounting, really, that I was, that I read. Yeah. About, like what kind of a guy he was in, in, in Maryland at the time. So. Right. Well, I don't think he uh, thought it was a very flattering portrayal. Um, it's funny, I mean, you remember when he goes to see the, uh, Carcetti goes to see the governor and the governor won't meet with him and that guy keeps coming down and telling them, oh, just a few more minutes. Uh, that was actually yeah. the real governor uh, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that guy that comes down to tell them oh, a few more minutes, yeah. <laughs> and okay, uh, that was the that was the real governor that was the real governor of, of, of Maryland at the time. <laughs> yeah. And apparently, uh, David okay. Simon offered uh, O'Malley a uh, cameo, and he declined. So, because <laughs> he was not too none too happy with his portrayal of Scarcetti. <laughs> yeah, that's that's bizarre because. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I, I feel like there's plenty of Baltimore pride from this show. I think I think Baltimore appreciates that it was filmed in Baltimore. Yeah, yeah. Gave, you know, a huge profile to the city, but at the same time, like, individuals within them, the milieu there were not, not too flattered, I guess, with their tutorials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although um, apparently yeah. there was a former mayor that was that actually played the health department commissioner after uh, Amsterdam, you know, when they're having those meetings about Amsterdam when it all goes down. Uh, and that was an actual, the previous mayor who actually did try something like Amsterdam and, and obviously it suffered the same fate. But uh, maybe he was a little more forgiving because they kind of portray, portrayed that in a little more of a favorable light. But... <laughs> Wow. Okay, well, if Amsterdam was ever attempted, then that kind of discredits probably something I said in the past, which was that <clears throat> that I felt like the Amsterdam was one of those kind of pie-in-the-sky things that never would have actually been tried. I, I don't I don't think, think it happened exactly the way that they said it happened in the show. I think it was just probably attempted on a smaller scale, and it was probably a little less secretive, but I think it kind of did turn out once the, you know, once the, gov- once the governor's office or whatever got, got wind of it and higher up and they kind of shut it down, but I don't think it was it was like this one rogue police commander doing this under the nose of everybody. It was more like the mayor taking charge and and doing it, and then you know having to shut it down later. So, but hmm. yeah, um, I like the line in the story where they said 120 people were evacuated or something, and they're like, wait, and, and like the the senior copy editors or whatever with the newspaper like. You mean 120 people were given enemas? And they're like, no. What do you mean? And they're like, well, people can't be evacuated or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wow. Okay, that's some. You know, I'm, like, I'm an English teacher, but like, I, you know, these guys are pulling out like little details of the English language that even I'm not familiar with. Uh, you know, <laughs> intimate level. So that was that was kind of fun to see those guys like kind of running the newsroom and just like knocking down all the younger people. Who are like, what do you mean? And there's an error or something. <laughs> so. That was that was funny. Yeah. Um, 
let's see, we had Augustus Haynes, I think was his name. We had Alma Gutierrez. We had Scott mm-hmm. Templeton. We had the, the people in the newsroom. That was a, that was always an interesting dynamic throughout the series. And actually, we find out that the, the black guy who runs Carcetti's car- campaign in season four, basically, he used to be a newspaper reporter, mm-hmm. but now he's gone into the political kind of activist game and certain, mm-hmm. or political operative game, I guess we should say. Yeah. So that was interesting. So he still had connections with some of the people like Gus at the newspaper there. That was, mm-hmm. again, you know, there's just so much interconnectivity in this show. Well, that, that also mirrors real life, too, because um, Dave David Axelrod, who was kind of the same thing to Barack Obama that this guy was to Carcetti, was a, I forget if it was a Chicago Sun-Times or Chicago Tribune reporter before he went to work for that. So I think that is a common theme that, you know, a former journalist will, will jump on a, you know, politician's train if they think they're going, you know, big places. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I liked it when they they had the interview or whatever with the they were they were investigating basically drug dealers getting bought out of properties that they had for extremely high prices, and like uh, I think it was uh, Gus in the, in the newsroom read uh, the quote from Fat Face Rick. He said, "Hey, I'm a businessman. City wants to help me out. I ain't gonna argue." <laughs> it's like they're giving him, him like a million dollars for like a house that's, that he bought for a couple hundred th- or fifty thousand or something. Yeah, <laughs> and, and like he's just like he's got this very benevolent view, very naive and benevolent view of the city government that they're just going to give a guy, uh, you know, millions of dollars for this property without some quid pro quo or something in there, which is, you know, anybody else could see. But he's just like, hey, if the city government wants to help me out, you know, I'm not going to complain. It's like, yeah, the city government is is doing some dirt there. So that was a fun one. Um, what did you think about Herc working for uh, Levy, the uh, the, uh, the uh, defense attorney, the dirty, dirty, dirty defense attorney? I guess it makes sense for him, you know. I mean, and he did was able to help a little bit by giving Marlowe's number to Carver. So I mean, he, he was still doing a little bit of good, even though he was doing a little bit of bad. And he, I guess he, Levy never found out about it, and it only helped what happened with uh, Marlowe at the end there. So. <laughs> Well, at the end, he also told them he suspected that there was a wiretap because that's what these people do. Mm-hmm. And that's how Levy knew to, to kill the case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, hurt like the Lord. He giveth and he taketh away. But he didn't know that, like, he gave the number to them, though, right? Hurt never knew anything. No, not, not Herc, Levy. Levy never knew that Hurt gave Carver the number. Yeah, that's true. Right. Yeah. Um, I thought it was interesting at the end when, like, he's, you know, basically, you know, these people are, you know, at least Marlo Stanfield is getting off of this huge bust and stuff, and, and Levy talks to him and stuff, and he says, like, hey, you're a genius. And he's like, hey, you know, I'm just doing what I do. And he's like, hey, why don't you come over to my house tonight? We're having some food and stuff. And he's like, really? Me? He's like, yeah, why not? Like, okay. <laughs> I was thinking, like, there was all that talk in season three about Herc not having a, a rabbi. <laughs> I was thinking, okay, now Herc has got a new rabbi. But yeah, Herc has always kind of like been trying to attach himself to, to better people than him or more capable people than him. And now it seems like Levy is going to be his person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. But yeah, he, he gave them the number for the wiretap, but then he let it be known about the wiretap and kind of killed that case. So. Yeah, right. 
Yeah. Um, anyways. Let's see. I think uh, episode two here. We we had the beginning of the speech by Bubbles. It was an amazing speech, I thought. He was at the... He was at... Uh, you know, he's doing the... Uh, you know, Narcotics Anonymous group and stuff. And he gave that speech. Uh, and he said, I, you know, I used to get so high, you know? I used to work to get high. And then he stops talking. He stops taking it seriously. He starts kind of joking, kind of as a means of evasion. And, you know, Wayland in the back looks kind of disappointed at him because he realizes he's not directly addressing what happened with Sherrod. And then he says, yeah, I just love to get high. Uh, got to the point, and then he kind of pauses and he says, you know, I'm not in the right place to talk about this right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was you know, just a powerful scene, obviously. Yeah, I like that you scene, know, By the end of the season, kind of some full circle on that. But that was a good speech. Mm-hmm. Um, then we had, I think, in episode two, we had the part where Marlo starts to corrupt Cheese, basically. Um, and he, you know, there was a there was a meeting where I think in the first episode, um, Marlo appeared. He, had, he knew the cops were trailing him, so he made it look like he was going to the hotel with a woman to have sex. But he was actually, he sent her up to a hotel room by herself, and then he just went to the, the co-op meeting. And the police didn't know that the co-op meeting was basically going on right under their noses. And some people had, you know, called out Cheese or something in the meeting, and he, and, you know, kind of Marlo and Cheese kind of made eyes at each other, like, you know, we don't like these guys, we don't respect these guys. And then, and then um, you know, Marlo sent the killers, Chris and Snoop, to go after some people, and he said, you know, Next, we step to Junebug for talking that shit. He was a dead man when he opened his mouth. He just walking around not knowing it. I was like, whoa, that's crazy. You know, you're just killing like some other people in Tom Jones' thing for no reason. And then he brought he brought cheese in on the kill. And probably there was some torture involved there and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of got cheese's loyalty because his uncle had stepped over him to promotion to some other people to take over some property. Mm-hmm. And you know, cheese took it personally, and he kind of like you know, family wasn't so important at that point, and he just wanted revenge on these other people who he felt were kind of overstepping him in the hierarchy there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought it was, you know, wild when, um, you know, Marlo went to the prison and he was meeting Sergey or Boris, as he's sometimes known. Why is it always Boris? Right? <laughs> and so he's, he's, he goes to meet Sergey and he's been putting like lots of money on Sergey's, uh, his prison tab, basically. Is is uh, what? What do you call that in prison? The uh, uh, on your on your on your books or uh, yeah commissary. A word for it. I forget what it's commissary. Yeah, and stuff. And and so he goes there to meet Sergey, and he he sees a person come sit down across from him, and it's Avon Dexter. And Avon basically says, "Look, you, you need to you need to give a lot of money to some people that I want you to give money to, and then you know I will let you talk to this guy." And so Marlo does that, and he meets with Sergey, and Sergey puts him in touch with the Greeks and stuff. And, and you just got to think, like the Greeks must have been so pissed at, you know, I mean, they they basically gave the go ahead for Marlo to kill Prop Joe, mm-hmm. and they even they admitted that Prop Joe had been steady, quiet, reliable, all this stuff. And then within like the first 
big shipment that's supposed to come to Marlowe. Everything gets fucked up. They all get caught on the wiretap. Marlowe and his whole crew go to jail. And you, I, I just wanted a scene where I could see how the how the Greeks took that because they must have realized, like, oh my god, we really screwed up by going to this clown. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah. Um, yeah. What? Okay. So, what did you think about Scott Templeton? He's an old journalist. He's an archetype for sure. Um, you know, he's somebody that you know he wants to get ahead. Although, I mean, you know, from an outsider's perspective, never having worked at a paper like the like as big or as prestigious as the Baltimore Sun, I would be fine if my career, like, if that was like the highest I ever got in journalism, being a reporter for the Baltimore Sun or a paper like that. That's not bad. Like, that's a pretty good journalism career. I mean, sure, you could go to the New York Times. Sure, you can go to the Washington Post. Uh, you know, wherever, but, you know, the Baltimore Sun is nothing to sneeze at, and, you know, it is like a top elite level paper, and, you know, if you do good work there, it's going to get recognized, and even with all these cuts, it didn't seem like he was in danger, he was of a younger crew that didn't have the tenure that weren't, wasn't really under the gun for a buyout or anything, so um, if he just stayed there and done a little more, you know, hard work and in investigative reporting, he could have probably even got where he wanted to go the right way. It's just like, geez, you even need a shortcut now? Like, you've already made it in a lot of ways. Like, I know a lot of journalists that I've worked with that would kill for the opportunity just to be where he doesn't even want to be. So, for that, you know, that was annoying, first of all. Um, you know, but I, I do see that as, as an archetype. But, it, but like I pointed out to you, and, and we talked about this a little bit, it's like, these people always have to, like, you know, make up some heart-wrenching detail to, like, get their stories out. And they're always using people who don't want to be identified, and they don't want to go up their sources, and they don't use their names, and the quotes are a little too perfect. And it guesses like, you know, when that one quote comes through from the homeless rally or whatever, uh, when they're having the serial killer or whatever, and he's like, yeah, this is the best quote I could ever ask for. That's why I'm worried. And also, you know, all these people were in public at a, you know, rally, and you're telling me you couldn't find one person who would want their name used? I get it. You know, I've used, you know, people that wanted their names change far and few and far between and it's like if they're in a very sensitive situation if they have a job and speaking out might you know endanger their job you know that's something where i will you know i'll say okay look i'll use i won't use your real name or i'll use a pseudonym or i'll just use your first name or something if there's a public thing Mm -hmm. where it's like you're at a baseball game or a rally you can't find one person that would give you your full name come on and the quote's just perfect and this kid has a heart-wrenching story yeah right (laughs) like (laughs) yeah yeah that was i mean yeah the one of the the baseball game what he he said um um let's see he said like i've got he said i've got a kid in a wheelchair outside the stadium when he wrote a game but unable because he didn't have the money for a scalp ticket (laughs) and stuff and he gave him like he didn't give his name but he was worried because he was cutting class to go to the baseball game and then, like, later, you know, Gus says, well, you know, look, a black kid from the inner city of Baltimore going to a baseball game, he's like, NFL or, you know, basketball, maybe, but not baseball or something. <laughs> and he's like, you know, he, he could smell that the story was, you know, too too cliched, but also, you know, missing some, some local detail, perhaps, that, you know. Templeton didn't really think of mm-hmm. so and he you know it was kind of funny when he was talking to all the people at the baseball game 
Yeah. That's the game. He's like, yeah, no, I just came, you know, I don't know. We come here, you know, my kids like it or whatever. Or, uh, I don't know. There, there are people there who are at the game that just were not giving him the enthusiastic, like, all-American, I love baseball, you know, it's the love of the game kind of thing. I'm just like, here. And so he, he knew he needed he needed that, you know, he needed to have a real baseball-loving kid in a wheelchair who couldn't get in. <laughs> yeah. And I think at some point somebody said it was too good of a story to check out. Like they didn't want to investigate it because it's just so, so perfect. Right, right. Well, I mean, some people, and I'm reading from that book, and also, you know, I, I kind of got the sense from the show that he kind of, like, David Simon had an axe to grind with, like, certain higher-ups at the Baltimore Sun, and apparently one of the uh, people's names was actually one of the names. They just used it for a different character. Like, the people they were based on, like, those two executives at the top that just completely don't want to know any, <laughs> they don't want to know if it's right or wrong, they just want to win the awards or whatever. Um so, I mean, people criticized him for having a little bit of an axe to grind, but, you know, that, that felt, you know, real to me, because those people aren't, you know, Gus is down there, he's in the trenches, he's seeing, you know, what's real, what's not, he's not letting things slide that shouldn't slide. These people, you know, if they can win an award off of something and squint their eyes hard enough to make them believe it's real, they're, they're willing to do that, you know what I mean? So they're a little bit disconnected from the day-to-day, so that didn't, that you know, that rang pretty true as far as, like, you know, an archetype of, like, kind of management as opposed to somebody like, you know, and I guess I, maybe I'm a little sympathetic to Gus because I, I, my previous job title at the uh, Cocoa Tribune was city editor and he's also city editor. So, I mean, maybe I, maybe I feel a little bit of kinship with him, but you know, he, he kind of sees what's going on because he's, his nose is to the grindstone every day. He's out there, you know, in the, in the middle of it. And these people are just kind of in their glass offices in the back, just kind of observing it all and thinking what, what they could win. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was that was really interesting. Man. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, I felt like I mean the dialogue. I like for me the the dialogue. I will say in the uh, um, in the, the newsroom felt a little bit almost too snappy sometimes. It felt kind of like a, what I imagine like the West Wing or something would be like, sort of just like kind of everybody well spoken and erudite and everything, and you know. I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It could be wrong. I don't know. Is, is the news really like that? Is everybody just like... <laughs> that, that's probably like the know, most idealized way you could have it but sure I mean yes the newsroom is a very chatty place uh, it's usually very loud uh, there's always people like like doing that, that what you talk about with that people arguing over a word uh, that happens a fair amount you know people grabbing the style book the AP style book and arguing over the usage of this or that uh, that happens a fair amount you know and, and just kind of the uh, the hum and the chatter uh, you know it's, it's never that eloquent mostly but that's a very like and it, it kind of reminded me of those old school black and white his girl Friday type movies where it's like the um, yeah Schmitty and it's like you know <laughs> back and forth and the repartee yeah. like that's that's the most idealized version of that but sure yeah I mean a, a normal newsroom is is kind of loud and chatty and our, those little arguments do happen all the time so <clears throat> yeah well, I heard a lot of people quoting the style book. I never saw anybody pull it on, actually. No. <laughs> well, that one guy, I assume, had uh, memorized it. So. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like it when um, I like it when somebody asks uh, about Clay Davis. They say, "You think he knows the indictment's coming?" And I think Freeman says, "Clay Davis has been waiting for the other shoe to drop for his whole current life. He knows." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Yeah, he knows Clay Davis' style. 
Yeah. Um, and and then yeah, at the end of, I think it was the end of the chapter that McNulty, you know, starts drinking his whiskey and he stages the first homeless murder because he wants to, you know, free up the funds to find the long game, free up the funds to continue the Marlowe Stanfield wire. Okay, episode three, not for attribution. She's getting out of bed to go um, see her story possibly on the front page, um, which is an interesting thing for me to see because uh, when I write, or when I was at the Kokomo Tribune and I was writing my columns, those would always appear inside the paper, and I was perfectly fine with that. Um, as long as it was printed somewhere, I didn't really care what page it was on. But I think it's more of a thing with, you know, bigger papers, and if there's more staff and a bigger competition to see who's going to get out front, it's like my first front page story. You know, like that. I think that's like a big thing, and you get to tell people and show people and, you know, put it on your resume and stuff. Uh, I think that's more of a thing with like larger newspapers. It's like my story was on the front. Like, and I, I just never, like, I've only worked for mostly small to mid sized publications that, you know, I would put it on the front if you want, but as long as it's printed somewhere on a piece of paper, I really don't care. So. Yeah, so, I mean, did you ever get on the front page? Did I what? Did you ever get on the front page? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, and when I was at the uh, Ukiah Daily Journal, I had my column was on the front page of the Sunday paper every Sunday, and that was the most read paper of the week. So, yeah, but that was like, uh, you know, 10,000, you know, uh, you know, circulation and, you know, Baltimore Sun, I don't know what they are, but it's, it's got to be in the, you know, on Sunday, it's probably got to be in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, it's a different beast. Uh, but yeah, no, I've, I've been on the front page plenty of times, but it never really like, you know, it was never like, oh, I need to be on the front or it doesn't count. You know, who knows? <laughs> you know? I, I was going to it sounded like you hadn't been on the front page. Maybe you're just like jealous. Like, like was it Common or Cameron? Who was it? Was John Bill O'Reilly? You mad? You mad? Oh yeah, Cameron. Yeah. Uh, no, the uh, the Baltimore Sun is two hundred and fifty. Like, yeah. I don't care. I don't want to be on the front page anyway. Okay. Gosh, why are these people so like ambitious? <laughs> well, I know mostly mostly what I did, at least at the Kokomo Tribune, was. You know, opinion stuff, you know, editorials, columns, and stuff, and that usually never runs on the front page. Usually, just news and, and features and that on the front. And it, like I've had that plenty of times, and I've even had, like I said, columns around on the front. But you know, when it when it was, it was like ten thousand, twenty thousand, as opposed to the Baltimore Sun. I'm looking right now on Wikipedia is uh, two hundred fifty thousand uh, circulation for Sunday editions. So I mean, that's you know, that's a little bit of a bigger deal. And you know, especially when there's a larger staff too, there's probably a, a competition around. You you know, we who's going to get on the front and who's going to be you know shoved inside. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a thing. I'm sure we'll come back to it here, but it's a, yeah, it's a fascinating mm-hmm. season. Yeah, I, I I thought it was you know again I was excited to get to season four and season five because you you know your professional background is in education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And journalism, media, right? So I thought that that would be, you know, these would be two seasons that might tickle your fancy. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. And you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sorry that they went down that road with the, with the uh, newspaper thing. I, like I said, I thought Gus was one of my favorite characters of the whole series, and I just thought he really embodied what, like, I want to be as a journalist. And he was really like kind of the uh, quiet hero of that situation. But you know, it's like I was just so disappointed that Templeton got away with it. <laughs> Yeah. 
Well, I mean, you know, this is Baltimore, gentlemen. God will not save you, right? I think Burrell said a couple of years back. I mean, I think that's kind of the message of the show is that these institutions are, um, you know, kind of un, un, incompetent, you know, corrupt, uh, damaging, and yet individuals can make a change, affect a change in their community, but they can't do it through their, through their institutions and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's, again, that, that's kind of like the shine of light that shines through the whole show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoyed the lunch of Jay Lansman in episode three, which was Chinese takeout, diet Pepsi and Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> <laughs> And at one point during the season, I think he was looking at like a Victoria's Secret or something. He's like, "What's that?" Because he's always got a panel magazine. He's like, "Oh, I'm 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 kind of doing a change. I'm I'm, I'm you know kind of looking at him differently. Kind of hot with their clothes on." Like, oh my god! <laughs> Jay Landon, oh boy, character growth. Character. <laughs> um, somebody said, um. Uh, oh, I think when during the trial of Clay uh, Davis, they had um, the, the guy who likes to rob houses or whatever, and the guy who was caught carrying the money, mm-hmm. the state senator, basically out of the projects and stuff. And he said, uh, "On advice of my attorney, I was going to answer that. Y'all trying to criminate me here? Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was great to criminate. <laughs> that was that was fun." Um, Cheese. Oh God, I forgot about this betrayal. But Cheese gave up Butchie to Marlo yeah. to basically torture and kill uh, to try to bring Omar to Harding, and they did that with a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And Prop Joe said about Marlo at one point, "Ain't easy civilizing this motherfucker." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which you know, I think was what Marlo, Prop Joe thought that was his mission this season was to try to, you know, try to make a reasonable person out of Marlo, and it just was not happening. Obviously, so. yeah. I thought it was um, interesting that we both saw Marlo in the islands, and we both saw uh, also Omar kind of live in large uh, down in Mexico or wherever he was. And it's like, man, if you like, if you, you these these are two guys that are from Baltimore that got. Uh, you know, maybe not enough money for the rest of their lives, but certainly enough for a while. And they still, there's a drawback for them somehow. I mean, obviously Omar with, with Butchie and uh, Marlo with just being uh, Marlo, I guess, in, in Baltimore or whatever. But it's like, man, you, you've been to Baltimore. You've seen the uh, the vacants, the, the poverty, the desolation, but you, you have like $400,000 in the islands just sitting there waiting for you and you're really going to take the fight back? I don't know. Dude, just going to stay down there. You, it sounds like you're set like <laughs> yeah well it's you know i think it's human nature you know we mm-hmm. we all like what we're used to yeah know? like i mean leaving this job like leaving the job right now which i'm thinking about doing is like it's hard i've been at this place for six years working hard you know building relationships uh you know making that jump to another place i mean i could probably make it go but they're almost just as well but and it may even be better in the long run, but at the same time, like, it's a lot of instability, and, you know, there's no guarantee things will be set up as quickly as I'd like. It's, you know, it's less stable. I, I could probably stay here indefinitely until the place goes bankrupt or they decide to throw me out of this country or something. <laughs> you know, at the new place, at the new place, I've got no loyalties from the people there and stuff, and I don't, you know, so I, I, I can kind of understand it. Like, I mean, if, if Marlo 
leaves Baltimore with the money he's got now, he can't come back 10 years later if he runs out of money and try to take over Baltimore again because mm-hmm. he is who he is now, you know. And so I, I, I can see that and stuff. And I, and I think at the same time, like, he's very much like Avon Barksdale in that he, you know, he is, you know, as Mar- as as Avon said, just a gangster, I suppose, right? Mm-hmm. At, at the core, that's what he is. That's what he wants to be. And even when Levy gives him the ultimatum and says, "Look, you've got to get out of this thing and take the money and leave," or they will, you know, they will arrest you six months down the line after the election or something when, mm-hmm. they, can, when they can afford to screw up one of the cases and still put you in jail. And he's like, "Well, I'm still going to go back out on that corner." Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's just something that he's kind of keen. Um, yeah, um, yeah, Trouble in Paradise, Double Trouble in Paradise, Marlowe and Omar, both, you know, south of the border, west of the sun, what have you, yeah, that was, that was fascinating. Um, I think we come next to episode five, Transitions, Mm -hmm. um, Daniels and Burrell, um, episode four, you mean? That he wants to fire... Um, yeah, I wrote five. Is it four? It's four. Let me, let me, let me actually look at that. Yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. That is transitions. Okay. Sorry. I wrote down the num- wrong number there. Um, yeah. Daniels and Burrell, uh, Carcetti makes it clear that he wants to fire Burrell and promote Daniels. Templeton gets some perfect quotes from Maurice about how, you know, like, um, he won't sharpen the knife, but Daniel's just stuck it in or something. And, like, and Daniel's like, I didn't say that bullshit. <laughs> he's like, and, and Burrell won't even acknowledge him. He's like, I'm not even talking to you, but it's like, you mean you're trying to take my job? And he's like, I don't even want the job. And he's like, okay. Um, there was the great, the great scene where um, Clay Davis is walking up the court steps to the uh, to the uh, to his trial, and he's scared as hell. You can see it on his face. But like they've they've called all the news media there to come and cover this to make it humiliating for him. And he he just puts on a smile when he sees the newspaper. He's like, Jane, I insisted that I be called. He says, Senator, it's our understanding that you're the target of an investigation into theft and fraud. No, pardon, no. <laughs> some people are confused about some things, but that's why I came here to set them straight. Uh, that's why I came down here today, set them straight. <laughs> Happy to do it too. Happy to avail myself of the opportunity to clear things up down here. Um, <laughs> ain't ain't no big thing. Just seems to be a bit of a uh, uh, a misunderstanding about some of the dealings here in the community. <laughs> <laughs> And then he walks off, like, smiling, like he's just still just this happy-go-lucky guy, just happy to be there and, like, fix things for people. And then he, like, once he gets out of sight of the newspaper, his, like, his horrified look returns to his face and stuff. So that was, I did notice that, yeah. Clay, Clay Davis was just, uh, oh, my God, he was a force of nature in, in the Baltimore area, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um... I, I love one of my favorite scenes, and I think I posted this on Facebook years ago when I watched this for the second time, um, was um, when Carcetti was firing Burrell, basically. He said, I wanted to say a few words about public service and about Irvin H. Burrell. Uh, during my time on the city council, Irv was no stranger to me. Uh, I chaired the uh, public safety subcommittee, and I 
called upon him many times. We worked closely, and when I became mayor, we formed a strong relationship. And then in the newsroom of the newspaper, Gus says, he feared and hated me, and I merely wanted him dead. That was a great summer, summation. Like, and that's the frustrating thing, I think, about the newspaper sometimes is that you know, by and large, people working in the news media are not idiots, right? But they have to report things as they're said, and sometimes that doesn't capture the actual true implication, which the reporter knows, uh-huh. of what the actual dynamic in the relationship is and stuff. And so, yeah. and so again, I think people bitch and moan about things like late-night late comedy hosts being our who we go to for news. But that's the thing. They're not beholden by it to certain... Um, journalistic standards and so they can actually tell you the truth Mm -hmm. not just kind of like be a stenographer for what the officials are putting out there right well it's not it's a lot of times it's not what you know it's what you can prove um and you have to be able to put you know facts to the things that you're saying even if you know that you know them to be true you have to be able to cite them somewhere um i don't know if it was in this episode or what but um when gus is working with that one reporter who wrote the story about bubbles um it was a great scene Mm -hmm. he had and actually i think it was like fantastic writing advice uh that he had for him and he was like sometimes the weakest part of your story it's what's between the quote marks and what you say to like frame the scene or give people a sense of what's there is more valuable than you just saying like if somebody just says oh it's a bad scene he said like that doesn't really paint the picture like you describing the scene that is bad you know like if you tell people kind of what they're supposed to be seeing and and what they're supposed to be knowing about it that will stick with people more than somebody just saying it's bad he said you know and that 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 kind of stuck with me and I thought it was excellent, right? You know, this that show don't tell thing, you know, and I thought that was really good advice. So Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, I think um I, I think like just yeah, I I think journalists are are to some degree unfairly restrained by having to show just only what they can prove. Mm-hmm. Because like I can't prove that Donald Trump has a P tape but I know it's true, right? I know it's <laughs> down at my core that this is a thing that happened. But I don't know. Like, After that performance in Helsinki, I, I think the, the, the certainty is nearing 100%. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. President, for President Putin, thank you. Uh, two questions for you, sir. Can you tell me what President Trump may have indicated to you about officially recognizing Crimea as part of Russia? And then secondly, sir, do you, does the Russian government have any compromising material on President Trump or his family? U.S. President Donald Trump's position is well known on Crimea and he's been sticking to it. He says it's Crimea has been uh, taken illegally. We have a different opinion. We believe that we held a referendum in line with the rules and procedures of UN. So for us, this issue is closed. Now, as for compromising materials, well, I heard about it. There's been an allegation that uh, we compiled a dossier on Trump when he came over to Moscow. My, my colleague, when uh, Trump came over to Moscow, I was not aware of it. 
I respect uh, President Trump as head of the United States, but when he came over as a businessman, I was not even aware that he's in Moscow. Uh, take the St. Petersburg Economic Forum. More than 500 senior executives uh, from the U.S. Uh, came over to Russia. I don't even remember all of the names. Do you feel that we are compiling compromising materials in all of them? Well, it's uh, definitely it's absurd. I cannot really imagine anything more absurd than this. So please throw out this nonsense of your, out of your heads. And I have to say, if they had it, it would have been out long ago. And if anybody watched Peter Strzok testify over the last couple of days, and I was in Brussels watching it, it was a disgrace to the FBI. It was a disgrace to our country. And you would say that was a total witch hunt. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Like, I mean, what's going on with Trump these days? Okay, so what's going on? Uh, Michael Cohen says that he said, uh, okay, Michael Cohen, to, to, to place us in time and place, a couple of days ago, Michael Cohen taped recording of Donald Trump in his office talking about, you know, or in Trump Tower, what the fuck they had this meeting, talking about, um, uh, what were they talking about? The, the payout to McDougal, right? Um, the Playboy Playmate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, Donald Trump says in the thing, like, um, okay, we'll pay with cash. And his lawyer's like, no, 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 We're not going to do cash. Don't do that. We can't do that. Don't ever do that. And he's like, oh, okay, no cash. Yeah, all right, 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 right. And then, like, Donald Trump is trying to say, his people are trying to say, no, he said don't use cash. And then Michael Cohen was just agreeing with him. Let me know what's happening, Okay. Because of this, it would be better if you didn't go. You know, maybe because of this, uh, for that one, you know, I think what we should do is get rid of this because it's so false what they're saying. It's such bull. Um. I think I think this goes away quickly. I think what I think it's probably better do the Charleston thing. Just this time. Uh, yeah. In two weeks, it's fine. I think right now, it's it's better. You know? Okay, honey. You take care of yourself. Thanks, Pam. Yep. I'm proud of you. So long. Bye. What's up, Mike? Great poll, by the way. Yeah. It. Great poll. Making progress. Big time. And you guys are good guys. Oh, Pastor Scott? No, no, Pastor Scott. What's, what's happening? Oh, no. Was, can we use him anymore? Oh, yeah. hundred. No, you're talking about Mark Burns. He, we felt him well, just... I, I don't mean that. Uh, Mark Burns, can we use him no. anymore? No. Richard um, Lefrak, sorry. Richard uh, Lefrak just called. He just had, we have a chance. He had an idea for you. Okay. okay. Um, so we got served from the New York Times, I told you this, we were regarding oh, wow. to unseal the divorce papers with Ivana. Um, we're fighting it. Casowitz uh, is going to... Never be able to get that. Never. Never. Casowitz doesn't don't ever be able They don't have a... Give me a job, please. They don't have a legitimate purpose. And you so, have a, a woman that doesn't want to see Correct. Right. So, so been handling Yes. And it's all... It's been going on for a while. For about two, three weeks now. All you have to do is delay it for... Even after that, it's not going to ever be opened. There's no, there's no purpose for it. Um, told you about Charleston. Um, 
I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David, you know, so that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and I've spoken to me, and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up uh, with so what are we gonna funding. That, uh, yes, um, and it's. All the yeah, stuff, all the stuff, because you know you never know where that company, no, you never know where he's going to be. Gets it, but Correct. So I'm, I'm all over that, and I spoke to Alan about it. When it comes time for the financing, which will be listen, what financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I got no, no, no. Because it's important, we want to hear again a key part of this conversation. Remember the setting, 2016, before the election, Donald Trump and Michael Cohen on a recording ultimately seized by the FBI, apparently about a payment made to a former Playboy model. I need to open up a company for the transfer of all of that info regarding our friend David. You know, so yeah. that I'm going to do that right away. I've actually come up and, I've spoken, to me. and I've spoken to Alan Weisselberg about how to set the whole thing up uh, with so what are we gonna funding. That, uh, yes. Um, and it's all the yeah, stuff, all the stuff, because, you know, you never know where that company, no, you never know where he's going to be. Gets it, but Correct. So I'm, I'm all over that. And I spoke to Alan about it when it comes time for the financing, which will be listen. What financing? We'll have to pay you. So no, 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 no. I got no, no, no. And it's like I can't hear very clearly exactly what was said on the tape, but and I don't have any great trust for Michael Cohen, but I know Donald Trump's track record for lying and his people's track record for misrepresenting whenever he says the wrong thing. And so I know it's true that he said the other thing. Like, I just know it's true. Like, it should not be a 50-50, you know. At some point, you know, um, the lying has to catch up. And people in the news media have to say, okay, Donald Trump's people say this, but Donald Trump's people have a history of entirely misrepresenting facts going back way back like it just like provides some commentary on that mm -hmm. i don't know it's exasperating as a as a consumer for me sure. that they have to even entertain the possibility that what like Rudy Giuliani, Giuliani or whoever is saying about this could possibly even be plausible mm -hmm. well i mean we've talked about this before but that's that's been a big you know uh no, not with me, because that's obvious what's happening. Uh, with the, we're using the word lies as opposed to being like misstated the truth or you know didn't characterize things as the way they happened. Because you know people are like, oh well, you can't prove intent, and it's like at a certain point you kind of can. Can't, I mean, what else could it be? You know, at a certain point, if they're not lying, you know, it's like it's oh, I misremembered literally everything. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I misremembered everything in a way that would could only possibly benefit me when, if I remembered it correctly, it could only possibly hurt me. But you got to take me at my word here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's very frustrating. But I don't know. I've seen a lot of stuff about Trump the past couple of days. I think, you know, I don't know. It may be... We we predicted his demise many times, but it's it's not, let's just say we can't predict his demise right now based off what's happened this week. But things are not going well for him. And and what I've said since the very beginning of this thing, even you know in the darkest days, the earliest days of his presidency, when it seemed like you know he was getting away with it, 
my thought was always I would rather be on the other side than on Donald Trump's side because I think that he does not have a case in the long run. And I think in the end, he's going to pay. And I would not want to be him because he's facing he's facing jail. Mm-hmm. There was the interesting thing. Uh, Burrell apparently knew Prop Joe at school. And Prop Joe says Burrell was in the glee club. <laughs> so that was another thing where, yeah. you know, we had bunk, we had bunk and Omar at the same school about a year apart, and it's it's again, it's just this interesting parallelism where you you realize that these people basically came from the same place, and they just wound up in, you know, through choices that they made early in their lives, they made, they wound up in entirely opposite sides of the law, basically. Mm-hmm. So that was fascinating. Yeah. All right, episode five. React quotes. And Cheese betrays Prop Joe and is there when he gets killed or something. I don't know if he was there when he got killed or not, but it was messed up. Uh, yeah, I don't know. What did you think? Omar is an interesting-looking person, and I think it's because his eyes are set so far apart. Mm-hmm. You, you, you notice that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, when he, like, when he kills Prop Joe, he just kind of has this almost orgasmic look on his face. Mm hmm. I don't know. It was weird. Yeah. Really weird. Uh, Bubs gets the news that he does not have AIDS. He finally gets himself checked with Waylon there, and they check, and Waylon reads the letter and says he doesn't have AIDS and stuff, even though he had shared needles with people he did, like, a lot, it sounds like. And that's, you know, good news for Bubs. So mm-hmm. we had the scene where McNulty goes into the Baltimore Sun and he indulges the reporter who he knows has falsified this uh, this phone call to himself because McNulty knows that there is no serial killer. And so he knows that this guy's running a game. But McNulty indulges them because they need each other at this point. And later, you know, McNulty will go off on him for it. But I don't know. Yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Um, Omar. Omar attacks Monk's crib, at which has been set up. Um, they've got Michael and Chris and Snoop and a lot of muscle hanging out in this house, and they've made an obvi- obvious show of Monk going inside, and Omar's coming out with the other guy. He was the guy who had gone into prison on Butch's behalf to help protect uh, Omar when he was going to get shanked. And uh, I don't know, that was an interesting character. That was another character I really didn't know that much about. You know, they were listening to kind of sound like some kind of 70s tunes or something. And he's clearly just a very, very old school kind of gangster guy, but also kind of a gentle soul. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, he gets shot in the face almost immediately in the midst of the house there. And Omar realizes that it's a, a trap, and he ends up jumping out of, like, the sixth story or something and breaking his ankle and hiding out in the broom closet in the same building while, you know, everybody tries to figure out where the hell he ran off to after this attack. And that kind of that kind of sets off the, uh, the end game for Omar, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the new Westport development at Patasco. Um, bringing the Harbor Promenade, um, and Nikki Sabatka is in the in the audience there, and he yells at the mayor. 
uh, he yells at them and says, you know, funk you or something. And like, somebody in the hill, or, or Hetty says to his family, like, who's that guy? And the guy says, nobody at all. And that was, uh, I don't know. That was a, that was a sad scene, right? I mean, like, we know who Mickey is. He's not nobody at all. He's somebody. He's the guy we followed throughout season two. And yet, you know, when people who whose livelihood is going to be decimated by this new project because Parchetti thinks he needs to put his name on a project in the city, and they're damaging their, you know, permanently handicapping the parts there, mm-hmm. and this guy's upset about it, and then you know the political response is, well, that guy's not really anybody. And uh, so that was that was a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, McMulty begins his thing where he promises to make money flow for the police work from his bullshit homeless murder serial killer thing. Um, and he begins kind of he kind of becomes like the the de facto chief of the police department there because everybody's coming to him to try to get funding for all things that they need. He's doling it out and. Even when he when he tries to say no, this sounds like bullshit. We're just we're just on a vacation and trying to use your case to make this vacation. And the guy says, "Look, we both know that if they find out what you're really doing here, you're going to be in lots of trouble. So you better give me this vacation right now." And it's like, "Okay, I'll give you the vacation, basically." Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, we also had. Uh, Freeman talking to Sidner, and again, I, Sidner is the character that he's the quintessential character who was there all along, but I never really got to know because we never saw him outside of the police office, basically. We didn't know his personal life, his inner life. Um, and Freeman gives him a kind of speech about what they're doing when he tries to put him into this thing that he and, uh, he and, uh, and Melty are doing. So, because when they took us off the morning last, last time, when they said they couldn't have the investigation, that decision is illegitimate. And so I'm responding in time. I'm going to pass a case against Marlowe Stanfield without regard to the usual rules. That was, that was interesting. And, I mean, I was going to get to it later, but the thing is, we... Okay, with, with, with regard to this thing, Marlo Stanfield is a horrible person, right? Mm-hmm. Chris and Snoop have done horrible things. Uh, a lot of people are dead, a lot of people will be dead in the future. We know this. And yet, the show puts us in the position of kind of waiting for some renegade cops who are totally disregarding, you know, I don't know, obvious corpus or whatever, just like, I mean, just civil rights of the, or the, the, you know, the rights of the citizen. And, I mean, like, they're, they're basically, you know, pressing a case on somebody by pretending to be pressing a case on something else and using an illegal wiretap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the post-Patriot uh, Act world, I mean, like, this is something we should object to, right? But at the same time, in the context of this show, we know the stakes and we know where the bodies are buried and everything. And so we're kind of like putting this position of kind of suing for the cops to totally subvert the law and mm-hmm. go after this guy. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think about that? That's, I mean, that's kind of a big, broad question, but like, I mean, that's just something that we have to wrestle with with this season, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely a dichotomy because you know, in the end, that they're trying to do the quote unquote the right thing, but they're doing it the wrong way. So. <laughs> but. Yeah. 
I mean, we're basically asked to cheer for a police department gone rogue in a criminal prosecution of a minority individual, basically, um, you know, which should rightly be thrown out of court if it's, you know, full scope is uncovered, basically. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, knowing what we know about Marlo Stanfield, we're in a position of kind of rooting for these people because we know that they're, you know, good police who are being handicapped by the, uh, you know, the the system. And I, I don't know. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe maybe we we can't wrestle with it too much, but it's just something to be cognizant of, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it kind of is what it is in the story, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, again, I think that this show has it's a, it's. It's kind of an insult to call it a police procedural, but mm-hmm. it sort of is a police procedural, but it's also so much more than what that, you know, diminutive title would imply. But at the same time, I think that the show has a somewhat of a benevolent view of the police department um, that, you know, every police department that bends the rules to, for a prosecution like this is not comprised of the individuals that we've come to know and love in this show, right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's something we have to be aware of. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because that was like with the uh, Lester Freeman thing, that was what bothered me that, you know, he would go along with this and not do it the right way because he seems so by the book, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, that was obviously hard to buy, but at the same time, I felt like he knows that he's a good police officer, and he knows that McNulty's a solid investigator and stuff, and they just want to do what they're supposed to do and prevent crime and get bad people off the streets, and I think that, yeah, I don't know, I don't, I think there's a scene missing, I guess, and the scene missing is the scene where, and maybe there was a scene where this hits his limit, right? Because mm-hmm. we, can, we can kind of buy it from a because he's like, he's on the wagon, off the wagon or whatever. He's drinking again. He's, you know, frustrated by the incompetence of the department. And he, you know, we can kind of see he's he's been screwed over. The first season they couldn't arrest Bell or, or you know, Morchdale. Um, later, you know, Bell dies, Barstow goes to jail, Barstow gets out early, um, Barstow goes back to jail, and now they've got this other guy taking things over. And, and you know, obviously, it's never going to end, but he wants to have a successful prosecution of a major drug, drug kingpin that is, you know, killing people. Mm-hmm. And he's he's throwing away his happiness by leaving his patrol out to come back to this unit that he thought he wanted, and now the unit has been defunded by the, the government over the school budget, and he sees that things are going back to when things are not going to be done correctly and stuff, and so I, I, I can see it for him. I didn't see the moment where Freeman, Lester Freeman, reaches that point, though. Right. That's good. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. Um, after, after, uh, I guess different, different moving on, I guess, um, after Pop J dies, they have another co-op meeting 
And um, Marlo takes over the trail, basically. He offers Hungry Man's property to Slim Charles after he had killed Hungry Man. Slim uh, Charles refuses, and so he gives it to Cheese, who is chopping at the bit to take it. Um, Monk takes over the west side, Cheese takes over the east side, and then he just basically announces there's going to be no more co op mates. You know, this is the end of this. We just, you know. I'm going to manage things without actually being able to manage things, basically, and everybody else is kind of taken aback by this. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, he's seizing power, and, you know, and there's not much to be able or willing to do about it. So. Right. Um, Omar starts calling out uh, Marlowe, tries to get him to come out on the street to fight him one-on-one, um, and he starts hitting all the dark stashes and all the places that, that Marlowe controls and stuff, trying to get to come out. He burns the money, he throws away stashes. He's not doing it for the money. He's doing it just to get the Marlowe to come out. And he, and yet nobody, everybody's too scared of Marlowe to go and tell him that Omar has basically called him a bitch in the street and wants him to come to him and stuff. And, and so he's ultimately frustrated in that respect. Um, Let's see. Uh, Michael, Michael's mom gives up Michael for killing her boyfriend, to, I think, to Bunk. Uh, says he's running with Chris, Snoop, and all them gangsters who, all, who else is doing the killing around. And so, you know, um, Bunk gets onto the murder of ex-boyfriend who was beaten to death last season for being a child molester, basically. I think then we come to episode seven called Took. Where at the beginning, McNulty calls in as the killer, right? Yes, the famous call. Yeah, and then he then he goes to the newspaper reporter to get his statement about this phone call that was made to him, and he says, "I wouldn't worry. He's just using you. He needs you. It's working out pretty well for both of you, right?" <laughs> Which is kind of a funny line because obviously McNulty is using him, and they're using each other anyway. Uh, the, the higher ups put Bunk on the homeless cases, and Bunk, you know, kind of bucks at this because he knows the homeless cases are bullshit, and so he wants to, you know, work his real murders, not the not the homeless stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have kind of like parallel parallelism again with the police response and the federal response, the news media response to the homelessness crisis, which. You know, I don't think there's any crisis in that it's not worse than it was before this homeless murder thing started being manufactured. But at the same time, we kind of see what happens when uh, these institutions, as far as the police and the media, are brought to bear on a specific problem like homelessness. And they really, you know, they focus it on it, they throw their resources at it, they're looking at saving lives and, you know, highlighting the plight of this thing. And, yeah, I don't know, that seemed kind of like a thing where David Simon's saying, look, if these, if these institutions are really put to bear on something, they can make a difference. But I don't know. At the same time, homelessness can't be ended, basically, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought the homelessness issue was not really well done in this, uh, in this season. I think they tried to take a stab at it and tried to do it through the issue of this whole serial killer slash newspaper thing, but I don't really think they, I don't know. I feel like they wanted to do more with it, but I don't think they really gave it their full effort. So, I mean, maybe they did that through bubbles. Yeah. 
Yeah, although homeless voters is not technically totally homeless, but yeah, yeah, in the middle. But but yeah, but I I don't know. I'm I'm not sure that they were really trying to talk about homelessness to the same degree that they're talking about the drug trade and stuff. Sure. I, I'm not. Sure. I, I feel like homelessness was more of a vehicle this this season. Um, I don't know. I, I I think I agree. I don't think they did homelessness the same justice that they've done to other issues. But I think I disagree that it was intended to be more than it was. Yeah. Um, I guess one other storyline they wanted I, to do I, that they didn't get to do in season five was immigration. But. Okay. Well, yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Um. Yeah. I think uh, Landsman said, you turned on the fucking tap, Jimmy. They're finally paying for police work again. And then, you know, um, and then Bunk said, shame on y'all. I mean it, too. Yeah, I like that one. Kind of the two reactions to what McNulty did. Yeah. Um, And then, uh, yeah. Uh, Let's see. Then Gus gave the speech to Mike Fletcher. Um, you know, go in depth. Don't worry. You know, go out there, find a story, take the time to percolate with it and stuff, and develop it. And then, if you like writing about it, write about it. But if you don't, that's okay. You're not, you know, not beholden to the paper to give us this story. Mm-hmm. That seemed like a nice speech. It was. I mean, that's the idealistic of like what investigative journalism should be. It's like if you follow things down, you may not come down a rabbit hole. You may not necessarily come up with anything, but that's the only way you're going to get anything worth reading in that case. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that was that was. I should have I should have quoted that speech more at length. I didn't write everything down. Didn't make full notes on it, but it was a it was a good speech, and I think one of the highlights of the season when it comes to the journalism aspect of the. Sh- show um i loved it when um when clay davis was probably on the steps of the courthouse and reporter says what are you reading in the senate there senator and he's like, this here prometheus bound an ancient play one of the oldest we have about a, a simple man who was horrifically punished by the powers that be for the terrible crime of trying to bring light to the common people in the words of i I sell us. I, I have no idea how to read this ancient Greek name. No good deed goes unpunished. I cannot tell you how much um, how much uh, consolation I find in this in these slim pages. One more question, Senator. Ladies and gentlemen, I do believe that I have my day in court, and I will see you inside. <laughs> Clay Davis is like intentionally carrying this ridiculous book that he's you know never read out of red. <laughs> Because it's obviously about, it's all about Clay Davis. Of course. I am this person who was punished for the wrong reasons in society like 2,000 years ago or something. And <laughs> I'm drawing that parallel for you. Yeah. You can write about it. <laughs> Clay Davis, don't ever stop being Clay Davis. Yeah, don't ever stop being you. Yeah. Um, then we have, I think, the next scene, Mike Fletcher, the reporter, um, meets Bubbles at the soup kitchen and... You know, he's obviously, Bubbles is knowledgeable about this whole scene and, you know, gives him information, which, you know, eventually makes him interested in Bubbles to, to report Bubbles' story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
Uh, Omar continues his his uh, his scorched earth policy with regard to Marlowe. He executes Savino. Um, Savino is like, uh, you used to be muscle for Barksdale, didn't you? He's like, yeah, that was then or something. And he's like, um, and Omar looks like he's thinking about letting him go, but then he's like, you know what? And he shoots him in the face or something. And he's like, mm-hmm. and then uh, Omar approaches Michael's crew on his crutches from his still, you know, broken ankle. Um, Michael tries to look away so that Omar hopefully won't recognize him from the shootout at Bunk's, or Monk's house. Um, you know, Omar is just on the warpath, basically. Um, yeah. I, I thought, like, um, the, they had the final conclusion of the Senator Clay Davis trial where I said, you know, he plays the race card from the bottom of the deck, to paraphrase the the, the defense attorney from uh, the uh, O.J. Simpson trial. By the way, you got to watch the uh, the American Crime Story, The People versus O.J. Simpson. Great show, I thought. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. Very interesting. And in this in this one, I think Perlman and Bond. I think Perlman plays Marsha Clark, and uh, Bond plays Christopher Darden. Just, you know, mm-hmm. two district attorneys basically totally out of their element, getting, like, totally screwed by somebody else who has just played the emotional aspect of the case in a way that they didn't even see coming. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the thing, we have Kima's Goodnight Moon speech um, to her son, I guess, her, who's with her ex-girlfriend and stuff, but she's watching that night. And I don't know. I, I think they were going for something poignant. She's like, good night, hustlers, good night, criminals, good night, da 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 And I'm like, I thought that was kind of lame. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it quite hit the mark that they were going for. It seemed a little bit too, I don't know, on the nose or something. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but that was the end of the t- episode. Again, I'm, I'm trying to kind of push us through here because I know we, we've taken a long time. I know this is our open, like our final episode um, and stuff, but at the same time, I do know I'm cognizant of our time and our audience's time. Mm-hmm. Uh, episode eight. I forget the title. Clarifications. Uh, okay. Terry Whoring. I don't know who that was. Said a lie ain't a side of a story. It's just a lie. Mm-hmm. I think that that's something we can all would all do well. Keep in mind here in the days of Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something we need to remind ourselves of because that that was the the kind of the title card that plays after the uh, the epigraph is a better song basically. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, uh, yeah, lie ain't a side of a story, it's just a lie. That was the uh, homeless veteran that says uh, says this in a rebuttal of Scott Templeton. Yeah, yeah. It's very important, you know, when when Donald Trump or when uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders or whoever they put out there, uh, you know, tries to give an alternate version, they give us the alternate facts. Uh, we have to remember that you know sometimes a lie is just a lie. You know it's not a it's not a defensible position. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, we see we catch up with Putin, who has been to jail. He's been out of jail. He's been back on the corner, and he's seen the drama with uh, with Marlowe. And he's now got a job. He's he's got a job that looks looks like a Footlocker or something like that. And Dukey has come in looking for a job, and Putin can't give him a job. He says he's not old enough. So, again, Dukey is getting squished in between, you know, 
not being able to stay in school, not having a family to support him, and yet not being old enough to, to take the responsibility to support himself in society, basically. So, And we see the tragic consequences of that. And Poot says he just got tired. He got tired of kind of being on the streets and being on the corner and, you know, the death, the jail, the, the you know, all that stuff. Um, so that was that was kind of an interesting ending point for Poot. Um, uh, Omar continues his scorchless policy. He rats out a crew to the police. Um, and when they're gone, I think he goes and dumps their stash or something when they get run off the thing. Um, and then he goes into a Korean-owned convenience store, and he gets shot in the back of the head by a kid who had been torturing a cat a few scenes earlier when mm-hmm. he woke up to the, to do the the thing. And yeah, that was that was really terrible. <laughs> you know, we everybody loved Omar, right? It's mm-hmm. just he's a he's a force of nature. He's a great character, and. You know, I don't know. It's 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 painful to watch him go out like that. I don't know how he should have gone out. And maybe I think a strong argument can be made that you know making him go out like a huge hero in a hail of gunfire would be a little bit too obvious. Mm-hmm. So, well, they talked about that in the book, and David Simon he had said he fought against that to have it just be kind of a mundane thing with that kid. You know, that was more the way he wanted him to go out as opposed to like the big old west, you know, gun battle or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it was probably the right choice. I think that it would have been very obvious to have him, you know, just go out as a hero in a gun battle or something. But, but he kind of gets a pos- posthumous uh, he- heroic action when Bunk finds the list of all of the street locations and the names of the lieutenants of Marlowe and where exactly where they are because. Uh, because Omar was going around hitting those places, and then Bunk says, okay, well, I'm going to give this to Lester, basically, and tell him, okay, this is where these people are, this is what they're doing. And that kind of helps, ultimately helps Lester solve the code, I think. Yeah. Um, Apparently when they shot that scene with uh, Omar getting shot, that that kid, like, uh, that look on his face is apparently very realistic, uh, because, like, apparently they didn't tell him that, like, the blood was going to come out of the back of his head like that, and he, like, ran into his mother's arms and started crying and stuff after that. So apparently that reaction right after he shot him was, like, a pretty realistic thing. And I guess uh, Michael K. Williams, the guy that played Omar, had to, like, show him, like, look, no, you didn't actually shoot me. Look, it's just fake. You know, it's like, so... I guess I guess I feel a little bit bad about that, but at least at least it was like a genuine reaction in the moment. So <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, David Simon's a fan of cinema verite. Yeah, absolutely. Is that, is that a correct reference? That, that pretty much. Yeah. He wants, to, mm-hmm. he, he wants to get the method, even if the method has uh, gotten uh, in the way. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was interesting when Minoli uh, and Kima go to the FBI to get their profile of the killer, mm-hmm. right, based on what they've heard on the on the phone. And they, they basically describe Minoli. They say, um, uh, sexual to point but inhibited, nocturnal on some, diurnal on the others, white male, late 20s to 30s, likely not a college graduate, but feels nonetheless superior to those with advanced education. Likely employed in a bureaucratic entity, possibly civil service or quasi-public service, from which he feels alienated. 
He has a problem with authority and a deep-seated resentment of those who he feels have impeded his progress professionally. Uh, the minimized sexual activity suggests that this is not a primary motive for the killings. The suspect has trouble with lasting relationships in this, and is possibly a high-functioning alcoholic. Um, uh, with alcohol being used as a trigger in the commission of these crimes. It was, uh, that was funny. Yeah. So he says, you know, sometimes we go to the FBI and they give us some stuff. They tell us some stuff we already know and stuff. And they're not really helpful, but at this point he's kind of like, whoa, <laughs> they've kind of got me to a T here. Uh, he goes home late night, one night drunk. He's been cheating on BD. He's been being a bad, bad boyfriend, basically. And he finds a note that says, Jimmy, one possible future. Be back tomorrow or the next day or not. Think about it. Be. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was kind of a powerful. Uh, I think BD does a lot with a little bit of screen time, basically. Yeah, totally. And at this point, she's basically letting him know that if he keeps behaving the way he is, she and her family are not going to, you know, be with him there in the future. Yeah, I felt bad for her. Uh-huh. I felt bad for Beatty. Yeah. Yeah, that was, it was, a, she was getting a raw deal. Um... I think um, in the next scene, one of the scenes later, Jimmy, I mean, Jimmy has done a pretty good job of selling his scheme to the people who need to know. But the one person he doesn't sell it to is Kima. Mm-hmm. And then he tells her what he's doing, and then he basically runs out of the interrogation room where they're having this private conversation. And she is not fully sold on it yet, but he just lets her sit with it. And that ultimately really comes back to bite him because she kind of rats him out. Mm-hmm. Which was interesting because, you know, there have been scenes in the past seasons where we talked about, you know, um, Kima was kind of becoming the female Jimmy McNulty, basically. Mm-hmm. And at this point, she basically kind of goes way back on that and says, no, I'm not going to be this guy. This guy is doing, he's way wrong, and I'm, you know, I can't stand for it, basically. And she becomes more like Daniels, I think, in that moment. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to rush you, yeah. but I do have to get off uh, at some point here, so... That's what she said. <laughs> Never ends. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, I tell you what. Let me, let me see. Let me see. One, two. Okay. All right. I've got three more pages. Okay. Can you do that? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> um, let's see. There's a um, showdown between Templeton and Gus. Um Beatty gives a speech. She says, basically, only family comes to your funeral. All the people you drink with and work with, you know, they're going to remember you as that funny guy, but they're not going to, you know, be there when you're gone. Your family's for that and stuff. And that was was a powerful speech, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And McNulty says, you start telling the story, you think you're the hero, and then when you get to the end, and he realizes, like, yeah. Maybe I, I try to explain what I'm doing to my, my girlfriend here, and she thinks I'm wrong and stuff. And that's I think we've all had moments like that where we think we were righteous on something, but then we ended up not being. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the end of this episode, Omar's switched toe tags with another guy, a white guy. And the, the uh, guy at the morgue switches the toe tags back. 
And that was kind of the end of the episode. And I was like, what was the significance of that? As our final goodbye to Omar Little, what was the significance of that? I think maybe it was just that outside of the streets or his world, he's just a faceless, you know, nameless, you know, it doesn't really matter who he is. But, you know, when he's walking through the hood, he's, you know, Omar stepping, Omar's coming, people are, he's a legend in the street. But if you get right down to it, if you get to the uh, nitty gritty of it, when he's finally toe tagged, they don't even get the name right because it's like, who cares? Just another dead guy. So. Yeah, I, I guess that's that's as that's as good an explanation as I could expect. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as uh, there's a yeah. quote, there's a quote I forget, and obviously there's a lot of chess references in this show, but it's like the uh, the pawn and the king go back at the same box at the end of the game. I'm mangling that quote, but that's the gist of it. So. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well, we come to episode nine here, late editions. Um. The mayor is now pushing hard to get a 10% drop in crime, which is the exact thing that he promised Daniels that he was not going to do was, you know, focus on the numbers. Um, and yet, almost in the same moment, Freeman delivers by by coming to Daniels right after Daniels get out of this meeting where he's like, you've got to reduce crime. And then Daniels, you know, meets Freeman and Freeman says, look, I've got this case. And we're ready to go on it. We're ready to arrest everybody. I just need you to sign some things. And he's like, oh, okay. Um... The mayor gives a tough on crime speech after they bust the, uh, you know, the they, they bust most of Marlowe's crew picking up the, uh, the the major stash, the 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 the, the resupply, mm-hmm. and um, he gives a tough on crime speech. And this reporter who's watching, he goes, "Oh, you are so butch." <laughs> that was kind of, that was kind of a funny moment. <laughs> um. And at the point where Milo is in jail with his gang, and they're all trying to figure out what happened, and I think Monk or somebody says to him, like, you know, no, yeah, Omar's dead, but Omar was out there putting your name in the street. And Marlo gets furious, and he says, let him know, Marlo said to any motherfucker, Omar, Barksdale, whoever, my name is my name. Mm-hmm. One of the quotes of the show, for sure. That was, that was, yeah, my name is my name. I even knew that one before uh, before I even watched the show. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great line because like if you don't watch the show, you don't really know what it means. But like, yeah, for, I mean, for for people like Barksdale, for people like Omar, for people like Marlo, their name really was the only thing. Right, right. That was a kind of a poignant moment. Well, in the book I read, uh, you know, they talked to the actor that played Chris Partlow, and he kind of points out that was the only time that Marl ever lost his cool. And, you know, it was like kind of a strategy on his part by keeping the information from him that, you know, Omar had been putting it in the streets that he couldn't step to him because he knew he was going to react like that. And Marlowe was so, like, businesslike all the time. And, you know, he's trying to act as, like, a consigliere type, you know, uh, Silvio Dante type figure to him in that moment because he knows that the top guy Marlowe is going to fly off the handle when he hears that but it's like you know Omar's dead you know what I mean like he, you know, he, this doesn't matter anymore but but Marlowe still this is important to him you know so mm-hmm. yeah that was that was definitely a character moment mm-hmm. um, I, I thought in the newsroom the, the somebody said um, there uh, like one of the higher-ups who supports Scott Templeton in his in his reign of bullshit there says and Scott, we need to start looking for the points where the response to the problem can be criticized. 
Um, so covering the reaction to our stories is as important as the stories themselves. I thought that was an interesting thing because sometimes we definitely see that like in the media, right? Like, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. there'll be a response to something and it won't be pitch perfect or something because it couldn't be, how could it be? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know, the enemy of the, the great is the good or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't know. It's just something we notice sometimes. I think like, um, you know, like, like Hillary Clinton will make a tiny mistake and it'll be put up next to one of Donald Trump's major fuck ups that would, you know, that would capsize any other campaign. And it's like, well, but Hillary Clinton did this little mistake or something. It's kind of like, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We we need to look for the, you know, the points where the other side can be criticized too, because that's our job too, or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. It's it's kind of a thing. Like, I don't know if you feel like there's any room to criticize the news media on that. But sometimes, like, I feel like, yes, the job is to, you know, speak truth to power. But sometimes I feel like the criticism is a little bit nitpicky at mm-hmm. times, right? Like, Sure. It's totally true. Fake news. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also kind of an interesting juxtaposition as to what they concentrate on. You know, if you want to go back to Omar, he's just like a news item in the, you know, crime section. And they just kind of, you know. What, yeah. what, did, what did you think when Gus bumped the story of Omar's death? for the, f- the story of a fire in an apartment somewhere. That, I can totally see that happening. And in a city big enough as Baltimore, you're never going to know that that was such a monumental event in that neighborhood or whatever, unless you like actually did what mm-hmm. that one guy did with bubbles and get right down in it. But I mean, you just don't have the time to do that with every single story. And on its face, that does seem like a bigger story that day. You know what I mean? But if you really dug into it, yeah. you would know that there was a bigger thing happening with Omar. But it's just like, how many people live in Baltimore? You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it was it, it it was a really sad moment for me because I like Gus and we all love Omar, right? Mm-hmm. And we want to scream at Gus, "No, motherfucker! Omar dying is like the biggest thing since Stringer Bell got killed." I mean, like, dude, this is monumental. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Just bump it, and do the story about the fire," and we're like, "What the fuck?" Yeah, like, but I, I sympathize with him. I could totally see him make the, making the same decision uh, if you're just trying to get the paper put to bed that day and. It's like what on its surface looks like the bigger story that has more impact. I thought it was interesting about this point that Freeman and McNulty both thought that the homeless murderer surveillance would die down naturally, but we as the audience know that it can't because the politicians can't take the chance that there's still a killer out there unless they know that there was no killer. And the Baltimore Baltimore Sun needs to, needs to bang the story continually through December at least to continue to get their Pulitzer, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, we see that the institutions, the politicians are not going to let this thing go. The newspapers can't let this thing go either for their own reasons. And so McNulty and Freeman, like hoping that things are just going to die down if there's no more murders, is kind of like a fool's game there or something. So, yeah. Uh, I thought it was fascinating to learn that Chardine was still with Lester. So Lester Freeman and Chardine from season one are still together. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, not something we necessarily knew. Yep. I think you had, you had mentioned before that you had questions about that. Like, are they going to stay together? And I'm like, yeah, we'll talk about it. <laughs> they do. So that was interesting. Um, we saw we saw Maiman, uh, we based son, make good on the debate team. Yep. Um, on, which was, you know, which was, 
I don't know, inspirational. Mm-hmm. It was it was good to see him, you know, doing okay. We saw. Him right and you want to see one of the kids not doing horribly. So. <laughs> At the same time, he's not the one I want to see doing good. You know, he was a fucking asshole to his friends back in the day when he was on the corner and stuff. You know, Michael had problems. Goofy had problems. Uh, Randy was doing okay, but later, you know, he's he's got problems. But you know, Naaman mm-hmm. uh, was kind of a fucking bully asshole, and mm-hmm. I was not thrilled to see him. I mean, it's good that one of them, yeah, made it to a better life and looks like they're going on to better things. But and maybe that's the best we can hope for is that one of them would. But sure. Yeah. But I mean, as Snoop says in the in the epigraph at the beginning of the episode, deserves got nothing to do with it. You know, it didn't doesn't mean he deserved to have that happen. It just so happened that he was in that thing with Bunny, and there you go. So yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a, you know, it was a nice, uh, nice way to put a bow on that story, I guess, because they had to do it. But um, I don't know, you know, I don't know the kids. I don't know. Yeah, the kids, the kids, the season four kids. I don't know. Yeah, that was that was a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyways, okay, continuing on. Um, Freeman sells Clay Davis's case back to him by getting info on Levy and the search within the grand jury who was imploring Prop Jim. So that was interesting. Um, yeah. Um, let's see. We had Bubba say, "My name is My name is Reginald." Mm-hmm. And Bubs gives a speech. He gives a you know a full-hearted speech, basically. Um, mm-hmm. Again, we have the thing about the name. You know, Omar's name. Uh, Marlowe's name and then Bubs' name, which is actually Reginald. And mm-hmm. That's you know, I don't know something about names this season. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, um, I thought I saw a woman in the in the Narcotics Anonymous meeting who was Omar's hit lady. Hmm. Uh, he had the two women he was running with, and I thought that this woman might be Omar's hit lady. I might be missing. Didn't notice but, that. Yeah. That's either here or there. I don't know. It might require reviewing or something. But mm-hmm. um, we had the amazing scene where Snoop picks up Michael to the strains of T Pain's "I'm Sprung." <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. Michael's already Michael's already scoped him out, and he knows that they're going to kill him, basically. Yep. And he gets the drop on her because she told him, "Don't bring the gun. We got a gun for you for this chance tonight." And that, yeah. That kind of told him, "Like, wait a minute. They've never said that before. I'm bringing a gun." And then, like, he says, pull into this, you know, this alley, I need to take a piss. He's like, damn, yeah, you know, piss when you get there. And he's like, no, no, I really got to go. And he's like, okay. So then he pulls over and he pulls the gun on her. And she realizes she's over And she says, he's like, why, why are you going to do that? You know, you're always bucket and everything. And you just do what you're supposed to do. And he's like, oh, cool. I'm not going to do it with or something. He's like, how my hair look like? And he's like, you look good, girl. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good scene, yeah. That was like, whoa. That was, damn. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That was crazy. I mean, I mean, that was such a weird thing because at the beginning of the thing when we were first introduced to her, I wasn't even sure it was a man or a woman. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, she's like, how's my hair looking? He's like, big girl. It's like, it's, it's a total reaffirmation that this is, this is a girl, right? Mm-hmm. It's a woman, basically. Mm-hmm. And, but she's also this cold-blooded hit woman killer and slaughtered like dozens of people. 
And yet at the end, you know, we're, we're brought back to this place where she's a human being. And, you know, she wants to be seen a certain way right before she gets shot in the face. It's it's fucked up. Yeah, the, the real story behind her, she actually has the same name in the, in the show as she does in real life. But she apparently was just days out of prison uh, for, you know, uh, manslaughter. And she saw and Michael K. Williams, the guy that plays Omar, was in a club. Uh, and as she put it, he was ice grilling her. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he saw her in the club and he just basically brought her to the strut to the uh, the set straight out of prison and she just started being on the show because he was like look she she's for real and you should put her on and she's got something so she was like apparently one of the people that like was super duper like authentic so I just you just mean like scoping her out just kind of like seeing her from across the club and, and noticing that she had a special something about her I guess so <laughs> hmm. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that detail. I knew she was somebody, basically, and, you know, she mm-hmm. a Well, apparently the guy that played uh, Prop Joe in real life, he ran, like, a youth-like uh, program for acting and stuff, and he brought a lot of, like, the kids that played, you know, were, were bit players and some of the kids from season four. Apparently he made the introduction from them, so apparently, like, a lot of the Baltimore people came through him because I guess he was, like, really in Baltimore and in the streets and working with, like, kids in theater and stuff, so. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that was the end of the episode. And that brings us to 
season five, episode ten, named only thirty. I don't know why it was called thirty. Uh, that's actually um, a journalism term that means the end of a story. No. Oh, okay, good to know. They put that on the end of press releases mostly, but yeah, that's uh, journalism code. Okay. Um, well, it's been revealed. Like, at the beginning of the show, um, Daniel is revealing exactly what McNulty and Freeman had been doing to the cover, to the mayor. And the, politicians, the politicians want the police to sit on it, basically. They say, like, you know, don't do anything on this yet. Don't fire these people because if it count, you know, we we are basically making my uh, political run for governor of Maryland on the back of this homeless thing, homelessness thing. And if you reveal that there never was any homelessness, serial killing murder, then I'm screwed in the general election here. So mm-hmm. that was fascinating. And, and Daniels is mad as hell, and he calls out McNulty, Freeman, and Sidner by name when he's walking out the door, saying, like, we're going to fucking fire these people, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the heartbreaking scene of Duquan and Mr. Presbo at the end, where Duquan comes back asking for money. And Presbo, you know, handles another student who's bullying another student like a pro, and we see that he is kind of full circle and he is a respected member of the teaching faculty there who you know when he tells people to do something they listen to it and we realize like wow he's come full circle and Duquan is asking for money it's just it's fucking heartbreaking I think Mm -hmm. um we have we have a one party consent call which is an interesting thing to talk about when we talk about Donald Trump with uh, Mm -hmm. his lawyer yeah and New York, apparently, one-party consent call is legal, apparently, also mm-hmm. in Baltimore, Maryland. Also, also in Indiana. Also in Indiana, too. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Good to know. So I could record my podcast without even telling people if I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So that was, uh, well, that the, anyway, this one-party consent call implicates Gary Levy because Freeman has found the a uh, man who's in massive gambling debt who has been sharing um, grand jury indictments and stuff with the Prop Joe drug crew uh, through through the, the lawyer Levy. Um, and so that was, you know, interesting. But it was interesting to talk about one-party consent. Uh, oh, uh, Marlo's in jail. He comes back in from his meeting with Levy, where Levy basically tells him exactly what's happening. He says, uh, he, he says, he says, cheese, you getting out. And he says to Monk, you ain't. <laughs> he just, he just kind of lays it out there. <laughs> You're going to jail for a long time. You're getting out. Okay. And, of course, you know, this is actually a death sentence for Cheese. Cheese probably would have been better off being in jail, but he sure. gets out. Um, you know, um, I, I, th- I think Marla believes that Michael has been ratting on him by after he killed Snoop, so he orders them to go out and kill, kill Michael. Mm-hmm. Um, like, uh, McNulty's wondering why the, the government hasn't shut them down and stuff and fired them and thrown them in jail, and he says something like, I don't know, I, the law is so big, people can live with it, I guess. And that's, you know, in the age of Donald Trump, the idea of the big lie is mm-hmm. something we can keep in mind. Um... 
I like it when they when they had another copycat murder come up, and Rawls and Daniels bring McNulty into the into the interrogation room. And Rawls just says, "You're not killing them yourself, McNulty. At least assure me of that." <laughs> and at that point, you don't really know who the other guy. You're like, could it have been McNulty? Could it have been the the reporter? I mean, yeah, still this guy, right? And, and it's like you're you're kind of right there with Rawls for the first time in the whole show. And you're just like, yeah, McNulty is a loony bastard. He might have actually done this. Shit. <laughs> That's a good point, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's see. Anyways, um, there was a very good montage in the scene that had no music. They just had shots of the city, of the bay, of the downtown, of the hood. I mean, just like a great montage, I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we get to the point where the politici- politicians come back to Daniels and they, they want him to check the stats at least for two months or something before the, before the election. And, and then he says, no, if I do it now before the election, then after the election, the race will be asking me for the first couple months of her administration to do it. And at that point, it's going to become a, you know, he, he realizes he can't, he can't juke the stats even once because if he does it once, then it's just gonna it's gonna snowball. He's never gonna stop doing it. And they're like, well, you know, you're you're covering up for us on this homeless murders thing. So why can't you do this? And he's like, no, I, I the stats are gonna be right. That's what I told you mm-hmm. at the beginning, and I'm not compromising on that. Yeah. That was a, that was an interesting character moment, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be real. That's that's the point I got to basically in the show where my notes end. Right, right. Well, I think we kind of talked about what else happens. You know, we we see the uh, a story come out about you know bubbles, and, and it looks looks pretty good. And we see bubbles bubbles come back up from the uh, from the basement. There, we see Chris Partlow with Weebay in prison in the final thing. Uh, Templeton wins the Pulitzer Prize. Arg. Um, let's see. We have. Uh, <laughs> Marchetti becomes governor, uh, much like O'Malley. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty much. Clinton in the primary. Exactly. We don't we don't see the ending part of that. Um, I did think it was uh, one more. I guess one more thing I could say about this last episode would be uh, they. You know, of course, there's always the big song that they use at the end for the big montage. Uh, they went back to the first season theme song with the Blind Boys of Alabama version of the uh, Way Down in a Hole. Uh, I see why they did it. Uh, I understand. I thought it was kind of lazy. They could have done something else. It seemed like they were just folding back in on themselves. I understand it's the end of the series, and they know that. But any any end of season, I feel like, could have been the end of the series if they hadn't played their cards right. And I feel like that it was, I don't know, felt a little bit lazy to me. And I felt like they could have done a more impactful job if they picked a different song. So Okay. Yeah. But was there anything else we didn't? I mean, we talked about a lot, but I mean, I I, I seem to remember there was a scene where Michael, or no, no, where um, where Michael is going to rob some drug dealers or something. Oh, yeah, 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 Omar. Mm Mm-hmm. And I I didn't get to that scene, so I don't remember exactly what happened or what brought that about. But I remember that scene also. Yes, that was a good point. Yeah, because that was also in the montage where right after that we see you know Dookie shooting up, and we kind of realize he's going to be the new Bubbles at that point. So yeah, that was also in that in that part of the episode. So yeah, I I think that was a good thing about the last two seasons. Um, that they sh- they they bring you full circle to see. Because, like, we don't, you know, 
a, a lesser show, I feel like, would, would do a spinoff where they say, okay, this is the young Bubbles, and this is the young, you know, Omar. Mm-hmm. But this show doesn't even have to do that because through these through these children, we've basically seen these other people's past, and we've seen what their future is going to be. Mm-hmm. And we see, you know, death and redemption for various people and stuff. And so the show, in a very ingenious way, has come full circle by a few of these story. Right? And so I thought that was just masterful, masterful writing and direction there. Absolutely. Yeah, we did it. We made it through I, the entire yeah. wire. <laughs> yeah. What do you I mean, what, if you could look back now? Because like it was kind of, it was kind of a hard sell to get you to watch the show. Uh-huh. I've been trying to get you to watch the show for a couple of years. Yeah. What do you, what would you like to tell your younger self now? Uh, uh, just just stick with it. And it's probably a shame I didn't stick with it the first or the second time because I think I had gotten to right before Kima gets shot. And I think you're right in identifying that as the scene or episode when I was finally hooked. Because I feel like that that the yeah. first two thirds of the first season are like a bowstring on a on like a bow being pulled back, and that's that's the big release, and all that tension comes uh, shooting out, and then you kind of see where it was going. And apparently, in, in reading this book, apparently that was a problem too because they had a hard get a hard time getting people to watch it uh, initially and that it was kind of that that was where the hook was for people that, that pulled them all in so uh, it was kind of slow and plotting yeah. but you do kind of see what they were doing they're building the world they're building the tension and it all kind of gets released after that and then you're kind of all in after that and that was long term probably a better way to get people hooked it's just like that that, that kind of came about before DVDs binge watching Netflix you know I, I watching on streaming that kind of thing was a thing so it was it was kind of they were a little bit ahead of their time in that way so yeah yeah I, I think that's why the show gets a lot of love now retroactively when it you know I mean if, if a sixth season of the wire was announced tomorrow people would go ape shit mm-hmm. right? I mean like it's almost amazing that they haven't done that but at the same time, it's been a long time ago now. It's been 10 years since the show ended. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, here we are talking about it. And here you are about to maybe have an interview with a guy who wrote a book about the show. Yeah. You know, that's good for him. It's good for us. Maybe. Right. And, maybe and the book was immediately a New York Times bestseller, too, uh, right as soon as it was released. And this show couldn't get, you know, it was hard. It was on the verge of getting canceled the whole time. Uh, it kind of, there was a, on the very last page of this book, there's a quote from uh, the guy that plays Poot. Uh, he says, if if David Simon said The Wire is coming back for season six, do you know what would happen to the world? Worldwide, it would be crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, That's exactly what would happen. Here. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, because I, I think that this show has achieved critical mass. Oh, yeah. Um, pun intended. I mean, after its initial run, basically. I, I was not really aware of the show too much when it was on, but, mm-hmm. you know, my God, I was in there. You know, after, like, 2010, 2011, when I first watched the thing, at that point, I was, yeah, I was transfixed. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. So, I mean, and and you said, like, I think you said right after you, you were, you were very upset or emotional after you finished the final episode. You said, we can't say this is the best show ever when this is how it ends. I mean, how, okay, how do you think it stands up to Breaking Bad and The Sopranos after, you know, having a kind of a week to kind of skew? 
I still, th- I, I'm going to stand by my statement that the serial killer storyline was a huge misstep on the show's part, and it had some excesses in the final season. I think uh, it had mm-hmm. still, even in season five, that I would probably say is the lowest of the seasons in my estimation. I still think it had some great storylines we mentioned, you know, with uh, you know Clay Davis and and the kids and some other things that we we wrapped up, and even the journalism thing, I didn't have a huge problem with, other than I didn't like how that ended just for personal reasons. But um, you know, yeah. uh, but I, I still I still think you know there are scenes and characters and, and storylines that are the best of anything ever, just because of the how expansive the you know scale was of the show. Um, you know, it you know Sopranos you know is probably still my favorite show of all time, just because you know it, it's it's fun to watch in a, in a way that The Wire maybe isn't. It's it's there's a little bit of eating your vegetables type thing with The Wire. I feel like in certain ways, um, yeah. but uh, you know I'd, I'd say there's a strong case to be made of it being the most uh, impactful, the most meaningful, the most, you know, the best, most well done, but with the greatest scope of any TV show ever, and it definitely changed the course of history, you know, even retroactively after it was out for a few years, so, yeah, I I think that, that you could definitely make an argument for that. Is it my favorite show? I don't think so. I think I still got to give it to The Sopranos, just just for, for personal. You know, I still think it's probably my favorite show. So, yeah, I, I think we have to remember that The Sopranos is missteps. There were missteps there too. Oh, of course. I, I would actually like. I, I I think you know. I think the question we need to wrap this this uh, podcast up with is where do we go from here? Now we have talked about the corner, and which I'm going to try to you know seek out and see if I've got a copy of it around my house somewhere or something. And we've talked about uh, Treme, which I'm sorry to say is a show that I, I started watching. I watched the first season. I started the second season. I just I lost track of it. There were too many other shows at the time, and it was kind of a slow burn. And I didn't feel like quite what I felt with the wire and mm-hmm. stuff, but we could definitely do that. I've recommended The Shield because I will say, back in like 2010, 2011, when I first watched The Wire, when I finished it, I was like, wow, that was a police procedural par excellence, and I need to see something else like that mm-hmm. pronto. And I think I picked up the, uh, the Shield, which The Shield is a different beast, but it's also a show that gets gets a lot of respect, rightly so in some ways. Mm-hmm. And it's also a good show, I think. But at the same time, I almost want to recommend that you go back and watch the watch the Sopranos from season one right now. And just, you know, and just kind of, to, to, to kind of, you kind of have to see things close together to kind of actually compare them, mm-hmm. right? Because we have, I mean, the Sopranos, you know, you and I have watched parts of it back in college, and I, we both have subsequently mm-hmm. watched the whole thing. Well, I mean, let's. I, I, my 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 proposal more is to uh, maybe do the corner, just because it's only six episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a contained story. You know, I feel like we could probably tackle that one a little bit easier, and maybe see where we want to go over there. Because from what I understand, the corner is kind of a precursor in a lot of ways to the wire. Um, so mm-hmm. I think maybe you know that might be the way to go. But yeah, I think that that would be my suggestion, and then we can maybe see where we want to go from there. I, I do want to maybe one day <laughs> when I have uh, more time. Uh, maybe uh, watch Homicide Life on the Street, you know, just, but that's another one, like, a, that's more a law and order police procedural story, maybe I wouldn't get as much out of that, but it is, that also is a precursor to The Wire in a lot of ways, so. Yeah, I think I tried to watch that one time, and it, I just couldn't get into yeah. it, it's just kind of like Irish cops with their, you know, mm-hmm. they, I think the main TV, they, 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 they,
in a place for some yeah. like alcoholic Irish crap is like uh oh, fuck you G- baby Jesus we'll go right now or something <laughs> it's like, like screaming at the world basically or something I, I, I just couldn't get into the homicide life on the street yeah no I, I don't even think we should necessarily do that one but yeah and I I, uh, I feel yeah. the same way about Treme I've seen a little bit of it didn't really hook me but you know I mean I felt the same way about The Wire for a long time but I know it's not as well regarded as The Wire yeah. I, um, I would be willing to do Treme just because I think that it's only three seasons too I think we could probably get through that so. yeah yeah he, he's earned something from us after this right? yeah yeah this for sure he's earned some uh, a leap of faith on something else that he's going to do mm-hmm. you know um, again I, I recommend re-watching The Sopranos The Sopranos is a brilliant show it's a beautiful show it's got a lot of comedy mixed in with its drama. It's got extreme violence, um, etc. Uh, but one thing, one thing I remember about the wire that uh, about the Sopranos is that David Simon can't like black people for shit, <laughs> right? You mean David Chase? You're, uh, sorry, yeah, David Chase. Other David. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a hell of a postscript to put on the wire. David Simon can't write black people. Yeah, after we've talked about him for like ten hours, like writing about him. <laughs> you know, he, he wouldn't have gotten this, he wouldn't have gone past the pilot if he couldn't do that. But, yeah, I, I I I will agree with that. It's a but that's why it's a genre show. It's like this like Italian mobster, you know, uh, goomba, like totally, you know what I mean? It's it's like totally. But he's got that ear for that like kind of mafioso speak. But yeah, whenever there's a black character. It's like, yo, this is tight, yo. Like it's it's very kind of clunky and stereotypical and not very. But I think David Simon really. So I think since he was a crime reporter and he did spend time on the ground level with a lot of people who did you know talk like that, really, he probably has more of an ear for it. So yeah, but I, I just I feel like I'm, I'm just saying I feel like there were some pretty glaring uh, deficiencies sometimes within The Sopranos. The Sopranos is a whole show. I love it. Before I saw The Wires, right. Absolutely, my number one. And um, sensing the wire, you know, I've kind of gone back and forth. But I, I finally come down on, you know, the wire. And I'm 35 years old, 36 in Korea. Um, and you know, at this point in my life, I got to start eating my vegetables, right? <laughs> you know. Right. Well, and the only reason I hold things like the serial killer storyline against the wire is because everything else felt so real. And that was the only thing that stuck mm-hmm. out to me as like just clunky and unrealistic. And uh, why is this here? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you know, when the, when the Sopranos went off the wire trail, I was maybe a little more forgiving because it felt a little more cartoony to begin with, you know. But uh, hey, thanks for thanks for going through it with me. And uh, yeah, let me know if you can find the corner or not.
If you enjoy this podcast, there are several ways to support it. Join the Rob Burgess Show mailing list. Go to tinyletter.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show and type in your email address. Then respond to the automatic message. I have a Patreon account, which can be found at patreon.com forward slash Rob Burgess Show Patreon. I hope you'll consider supporting in any amount. Also, please make sure to comment, follow, like, subscribe, share, rate, and review everywhere the podcast is available, including iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Facebook, Twitter, Internet Archive, TuneIn, and RSS. The official website for the podcast is www.therobburgessshow.com. You can find out more about me by visiting my website, www.thisburgess.com. And if you have something to say, record a voice memo on your smartphone and send it to therobburgessshow at gmail.com. Include voice memo in the subject line of the email. Until next time.